You're listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast, where we discuss advanced strategies, tactics, and tips for actually selling your music. If you'd like to learn more music marketing strategies, then go to musicmarketingmanifesto.com. That's musicmarketingmanifesto.com and sign up for your free copy of the Music Marketing Blueprint. All right, this is John Ojaka. And this is Steve Rogers. And today we're going to be talking to music supervisor and top spin associate Joe Paganelli from Shovelhead Media. And we're going to be discussing what it takes to get the attention of a music supervisor and how to present your music once you have that attention. We'll also be taking questions from our listeners, so if you have a question, please call 1-800-296-1406. That's 1-800-296-1406, and we'll include your question in one of our upcoming shows. So, uh, Steve, how's it going? It's 2012. <laughs> what uh, it is? What's happening in your world? Well, not a whole lot. We really uh, had awesome, awesome uh, ringing in the new year with a, a friend's house who traditionally likes to blow up lots of stuff. So we did that here in uh, South Philadelphia. Lots of fireworks, all kinds of good stuff, and had a blast. How about yourself? Uh, out here in New Zealand uh, for for the next little while, and it was pretty quiet actually. Uh, it's been it's been a pretty busy couple of months with traveling and, um, you know, the holidays and we got a lot of building, uh, projects going on around here, not to mention work and music marketing manifesto and all that goes into that. And I'm getting married in a few months. So, uh, everything's just been kind of nutty. So new year's, we took it easy, just a little bit of champagne, uh, out here in the middle of the bush, uh, on our balcony. And that's about (laughs) it. Probably, probably in bed by 1230. Well, I was up a little bit considerably later than that, but uh, we had a really good time, and uh, I, I really love the new year because you really get a chance to, to think about what you want to accomplish, and uh, it's just really exciting when you think about the things that you did accomplish the previous year and how you're going to step off from there. So I'm just really looking forward to 2012 in general. Very cool. With that, with that said, uh, you got any sort of premonitions or predictions rather for uh you know the coming year you see any any shifts anything happening in the music business or anything uh you know basically what's your take for musicians wondering what's coming and what they need to sort of prepare for well i i think that you're going to see a lot of the same Uh, i mean i think you're going to see a lot of musicians doing a lot of the same things that they've always done um but i also think that you're going to start to see a a good deal of awareness amongst uh, indie musicians um Beyond the point of, you know, gimmicky technologies that they can use to sort of get eyeballs on a website or, a, or um, you know, like a CD Baby page or something like that, where I, they're actually going to put together uh, a strategy as opposed to just having a handful of tools that don't sort of fit together, if you follow what I'm saying there. Sure, sure. You're, you're talking about a more cohesive uh, sort of direct response marketing strategy as opposed to just the sort of random exposure model that most of us have been doing for over the years. Yeah, I think you're going to see people – I think you're going to see an awareness, just more of an understanding of maybe why the things that people were doing before with, you know, you, you get a tool that sort of helps people you – know, gets a lot of eyeballs or gets a lot of friend uh, activity on social media uh, and then not really know how to capitalize on it. I think you're going to see a lot of musicians becoming aware of, you know, a lot of the things that you advocate, which is relationship building with your fans and actually starting to realize the value of a subscriber list. So I think that awareness is going to start to just be more prominent, uh, coming up. And, but I should, I still also think you're going to see a lot of, a lot more of the same, you know, I don't think you're going to see a lot of, um, 
mainstream musicians really cashing into the value of this, but I think indie musicians are going to actually start to make a shift this year. Cool, cool. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Uh, I feel like I'm seeing it. It's certainly hard to tell. I'm, I'm sort of right in the middle of, you know, teaching this particular thing that you're talking about. So it feels like more and more musicians are uh, going that way. I'm just not 100% sure if that's, you know, because I'm biased and, and right in the middle of, of teaching this strategy or if it's because it's actually happening. But it does seem that more and more musicians are coming to me talking, uh, you know, all, already with some general awareness of this. And you're hearing folks uh, like the people over at, at Top Spin talking about um, direct uh, to fan marketing, which, unless I'm mistaken, is essentially the same thing, just another word for direct response marketing. So, um, yeah, I did, a, I did a blog post on Bob Baker's blog recently and uh, talked about uh, a couple of these things, it was just predictions for the new year. And that was actually one of, of the same things that I mentioned is that I, I see that. Or I, I believe we'll see direct response marketing becoming, you know, an increasingly popular promotion method with musicians. Um, I also think we're going to see uh, a continued shift from a purchase model to an access model. I think more and more that's going to be happening. I think uh, rather than focusing on selling ten or fifteen dollars CDs or downloads, people are going to be creating a much richer sort of tapestry of music and personality and uh, selling access to that, maybe through subscriptions, maybe higher priced items. But uh, I think that I think that musicians are starting to realize it's just hard to make a living 10 bucks at a time. Uh, and you can really do a lot with that sort of cult of personality. You know, you can go and, and that thousand fan model that so many people have been talking about over the last couple of years really does work. But it, it's a little difficult to make that work with $10 CDs because uh, each one of those thousand people bought a CD, you get 10,000 bucks. Maybe you're recouping your indie budget, but that's about it. But if you start adding those uh, upsells, maybe uh, subscription models, um, merch, uh, house concerts, you know, you make all, all of those different ways that musicians do traditionally uh, generate income, perhaps the exception being the, the um, subscription service. That's somewhat new, but, but focusing all of those things as one sales funnel as opposed to sort of one-off promotions or one-off events, which I think people have traditionally been doing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I also think we're going to be seeing a dramatic increase in the merging of platforms, don't you? You know, where instead of just signing up for somebody's email list, you're connecting your Facebook account or your Twitter account, your mobile phone, and just a, a complete merging of these different things. Uh, I mean, we're already seeing it, certainly, um, but I think that's really going to be something that develops a lot over the over the coming year. Yeah, you know, I was actually just going to kind of touch on that a little bit, is I think you are going to see a lot of the, um, you know, there's already a lot of bands and musicians out there tapping into the power of mobile. I mean, it's, you know, obviously with so many people having, you know, smartphones or, and iPhones and on the go, that's primarily how they're keeping in touch with the world. I think you're going to see that a lot, but I also think you're going to see this nice little marriage into uh, the direct response approach, uh, and people start building their list based off of a mobile platform as well. I'm, it's something I'm really interested in. You know, it's so weird being somebody who is sort of a, a bit of a geek about this stuff, and I don't even have web access on my phone. It's it's not something that <laughs> I have never really thought. I look at my phone as a bit of a, a leash, so. <laughs> Um, the minimal the features, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But it is something that I'm I'm really really kind of my my interest is 
is uh, very peaked at this point about the marriage of direct response marketing and the mobile platform. Yeah, I, I've been playing with mobile marketing for a while, and while I, I definitely see it, and I think it's a, a, a you know an important part of the big picture, I've I've still been I don't know what the right word is, just unmotivated to get deeper into it. Uh, perhaps because mm-hmm. I'm not touring right now, but um, but recently that sort of changed. Recently, I've become really excited about it. Um, I did a recent training module, as you would have seen in the Insider Circle, and talked about Trumpia, which is a service that uh, I kind of I kind of dig, and I, I see a lot of opportunities for anyone doing any kind of event-based stuff, particularly shows. So yeah, no, I, I'm definitely excited about. It. I'm the opposite of you. I'm plugged into my phone all day, every day. It's rare that you see me without headphones dangling off of my, you know, ears or shirt somewhere. I've, I've always plugged in in some way, shape, or form. And that's out here in the middle of nowhere. So you can imagine <laughs> when I'm back in the city, uh, how often that thing is dinging and doing something. I, I, I'm so lax about my phone. I'm literally using a four-year-old phone. I don't even take the free upgrades every year that I get from my provider. So right. that's how unplugged I am in that in that regard. Get yourself a smartphone. Yeah, I know. I'll be there sooner or later. Cool, man. Well, uh, we should probably dive in. We still got a lot of those questions that came in, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and we need to we need to burn through some of them. But first, uh, as mentioned, we're going to be talking to Joe Paganelli. Joe's a cool guy. Uh, he is one of those, you know, sort of friend of a friend stories. We were out at a show in Los Angeles, and uh, we met and. I asked him if he'd be willing to talk to us. Again, he's a music supervisor, and I know that's sort of uh, an important hat for a lot of musicians out there. More and more, I see musicians making a very significant part of their income through music placements, and that wasn't always the case. When I sort of first started coming up in uh, the early 2000s, um, music supervisor or music placements rather seemed to be something that for the most part signed artists were getting and artists with publishing deals and that sort of thing but now more and more of my my friends who are out there as indie artists who don't have any affiliation with large companies are getting quite a lot of placements and you know there's a it's a big appetite for this stuff so i asked joe if he'd uh, talk about basically what it takes to get the attention of a music supervisor you know what what's the reality from a music supervisor's point of view uh because there's not a lot of material out there there are a couple of folks teaching uh, this stuff there are uh, a couple of sis but for the most part you know this is a small fraternity of people uh and and access isn't that uh commonplace so i i think this is going to be cool and i i i think folks are going to get a lot out of this one yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I this is totally beyond anything that I have any kind of understanding of whatsoever. So I'm really excited about this. Cool. Well, let's fire this up, and then when that's done, we'll we'll take some questions. Cool. All right, here we go. All right, today we have got someone special on the line. His name is Joe Paganelli from Shovelhead Media. Joe is an independent music supervisor, and he is also associated with Top Spin. And we're going to be talking to him about each of those things today. Uh, Joe, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm great. Thanks, John. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, joining us. I know that a lot of uh, folks listening uh, have have questions about music supervision and um, music supervising in general. And uh, Topspin, of course, is an emerging platform that uh, not only our listeners, but I myself have some questions about, so kind of excited to, to dig in. But um, before we do all that, why don't you give folks some background on yourself and just tell them who you are or what you do and uh, what you've been working on. 
Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, give you a little bit of brief background about where I came from. I grew up in upstate New York, and uh, unlike many, many of the great people I've met in the rock and roll business over the last 18 years, 10 years, uh, I had a pretty late start, and uh, you know, so many of those folks, uh, you know, were record stores at the age of and being the music business, and you know, we're, we're getting it on with the Pixies or with Led Zeppelin or you know, whatever else. That for me, it wasn't it wasn't that way. I uh, I was actually a physics major, and uh, <laughs> went off to college uh, in Philadelphia, and it and it didn't didn't work out for me, as you can tell, because we're having this conversation. And <laughs> um, I moved to California, and um, to finish my college education. So it wasn't until I was like 21 or 22 years old, which is pretty late in terms of like figuring out that you actually love music and want to spend the rest of your life doing it. And um, I met with some people when I got out of, got out of college uh, to talk about, you know, I took a job as, as a PR account executive in public relations and it was pretty But, um, you know, eventually realized that music was the most important thing to me. And I went down to L.A. really briefly, uh, came here. I live in L.A. now and uh, met a couple people recently. But when I got back, there was a position open answering telephones for Bill Graham Presents, which was the seminal, you know, concert promotion company in the Bay Area that, you know, Bill was a, a prominent, huge figure in the 60s and 70s and 80s until he died in, 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 um, in the early 1990s. And... Uh, it was really the most extraordinary experience that I could have had in my life. Nothing will probably ever be like that, but um, it was before, you know, Facebook and even almost before cell phones, and, and I, I was there for 12 years, and I ended up um, general manager of the Fillmore Auditorium. So my background is in live concerts, um, and, you know, while I was there, I had a chance to, to book bands and discover some bands and, you know, go to like two or 300 concerts a year for you know, almost 12 years. So um, in 2005, I came down to Los Angeles because I had visions of being a music supervisor and sort of had to start over because there aren't too many parallel lines between running a concert venue and working in television and film. And uh, ended up getting a great opportunity to apprentice for um, a big music supervisor named Kevin Edelman. Uh, he was working on the show My Name is Earl at that time. And he agreed to let me come into his office and just really, like, you know, reached his hand out and gave me that opportunity to see what he was doing. And that's that's where I learned some of the fundamentals of, of music supervision, you know. Uh, and one thing led, led to the next, you know. I ended up uh, getting a job at Sony Sony Pictures and the TV music group where we had a huge crop of great shows like Breaking Bad and Damages and Rescue Me and Hawthorne and Justified. Uh, and I worked for the vice president of uh, TV music creatives. His name is uh, Tony Scudamore, and, and I learned so much more there. And, and uh, about a year ago, I left to start my own company. 
Very cool. Very cool. I didn't mention it before uh, before the call when we were talking, but I actually worked for Bill Graham Presents as well uh, years back. Nothing quite as glamorous as it sounds like you were doing. I was I was literally <laughs> I was literally labor. I was rolling out carpets and moving porta potties uh, for you know uh, the concert series they were doing up in in Seattle when I was just out of high school. It was definitely a cool experience, but but not running concert halls or, or anything quite as cool. Yeah, well, that's really great. I mean, that's. You guys are the guys that actually make the concerts happen. It's, uh, it's, that's really awesome. It's, it, Bill Graham presents is sort of like a gift that keeps on giving. You just keep running into people who either went to a Fillmore show or worked like you did for Bill Graham presents, helping put the shows together. Right. And it's really played a, a, a prominent role today in, in my life as a music supervisor because I was able to, you know, you're just able to, to I made a lot of relationships during that time with, with, you know, so many different people in the business. So sure, not to digress too much, but I I, I think one of the coolest things about sort of, sort of living a life in music is after you've done it long enough, you really sort of feel like a veteran uh, because I think music is it's it's such a myth and such a larger than life experience for the average consumer. But when you've sort of been behind the scenes and you've lugged that guitar case into the uh, the the venue four hundred times and you you know you slept in a cheap motel or whatever it is that's your experience there's a real at least I think there's something really amazing about about feeling like you have seen behind the curtain and I think uh, that particular company Bill Graham presents uh, there's there's sort of nothing nothing that more epitomizes that as as working for Bill working for Bill Graham presents. But, yeah, I mean, you've, you've been in bands, so you, you know it's true as well as anybody, but at, at, at some point, when you get, you know, to the age of 40 or later, you, you know, you either, you, you either become an elder statesman gracefully and try to keep your punk on, or you, or, you know, you die trying along the way, so, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, you know, uh, you, you hopefully emerge in some graceful way and find, uh, you know, find out what your next mission is in the rock and roll world sure. to, uh, Keep moving forward. Sure. Well, uh, with that said, uh, let's talk about what you do as a, a music supervisor. Uh, now, you're an independent music supervisor. Explain to folks what that means and how that differs from what I think probably a lot of people traditionally think of when they think of a music supervisor. I know myself, when I think of a music supervisor, I think of someone who works for a record label and is essentially responsible for uh, compiling the music and dealing with all the various licensing issues that come up with a project like that. But but you work for yourself. So how does that work and and how does that differ from, from what most people might be thinking of when they think of someone who works for the label in that capacity? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I like to tell people that the term producer and music supervisor are uh, pretty uh, vague terms that require some explanation. For, for me, a music supervisor, being independent just means that I'm, I'm not working for a major studio or a major production company, and, and you know, I, I'm not the pipeline of uh, working on all of their content. Directly, so I'm only as good as the relationships that I can make with producers for television and with directors for film. So, um, you know, a music supervisor can come from a number of different directions. There are, there are folks who have worked with television companies and who, um, you know, work at record labels that can music supervise a film, certainly. But you just have to be careful what you're describing and, uh, you know, how I would 
how I, I try to draw the line in the sand is that, you know, music supervisors, somebody who's on the buying side of, of placing music in a T-Bitcoin project, and, uh, you know, they, they can come from the other side of the fence, but that's, that's the definition for me. So, um, you know, that's, that, that, that's what I mean by independent music supervisor. I'm not at Sony Pictures, for example, just handling all of Sony Pictures' work. So just so I understand, would it work sort of like this? Let's say I'm an I'm a independent. By the way, actually, is it independent um, films that you're typically working with, or is it major uh, studio pictures? Like what kind of budget um, are you looking at? Yeah, you know, you, you start off as a music supervisor. You know, there's, there's, there are different tiers. You know, you might, when you're first getting your chops, you know, be working on student college projects, and then you've got documentaries, and you can move up into, into independent film world, and then you've got television shows, and each, then there's major independent films, and finally there's really large studio projects, and I just, I think that those generally come with a level of uh, expected uh, expertise on those levels, so uh, for me, while I was at Sony TV Music, uh, you know, my boss worked directly on network television shows and occasionally I was able to help him and we sometimes acted as the music supervisor for those shows. As an independent music supervisor with my company Shovelhead Media, uh, you know, I work on documentaries, I work on independent uh, films and the, the last one I did was what's kind of considered like a mid-major independent film. It had Bruce Willis, Forrest Whitaker, uh, Shea Wiggum, who's in Boardwalk Empire, mm-hmm. and uh, Marlon Ackerman, who's in The Watchmen, and the uh, independent production company made the movie and, tr- and tried to sell it to the major studios. So it's, you know, you kind of catch as catch can with the projects as they come along. Gotcha. So uh, essentially a producer or uh, someone involved with the film comes along to you and says that they've got X amount of dollars and they're looking for a certain type of music and they have their various requirements and then it's your job to go out and effectively pull it all together and make all the different players happy along the way. Is that basically the pro- process? It, that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you and I were chatting a little earlier before before the show, but, um, you know, I, I think it's important to remind everybody because, uh, you know, and. Everybody who ever had a great record collection probably wants to be a music supervisor someday, and for for all anyone cares, they 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 can be. You know, there's no barrier to entry that way. Right. But um, you know, it's considered a dream job. And at one time, it was A and R guys who had the magical job. Like my God, just be an A and R guy at a label and, and get to pick bands that become huge, like U two and Coldplay. But those are sort of you know misperceptions. It's the reality is a little more gritty than that, and. Um, you know, as a music supervisor, I've, I've not run into a situation and I talk to other music supervisors and I don't think it's very often that everyone just turns to you and says, here's the money, you're going to sculpt this completely yourself. It's your taste in music that's going to drive all these decisions. I mean, it, it, some of the best music supervisors like Alex Petsavis or Gary Calamar and there's a number of others that I'm not mentioning are definitely hired for their specific taste in music, Will and Poster. Um, they have, you know, a great niche or a great brand or a great skill that they're hired for. But the bulk of music supervisors, I think, are sort of, you know, come on board as part of a, a, a greater committee to help guide this process. And the, and the process, you know, to break it down a little bit further, sort of has three steps. One is the creative. What what does this film need? What is the musical tone? What are we trying to convey here? Uh, you know, what kind of composer do we need? 
Um, and the second process, once you've made those decisions, how much music, how little music, is the clearance process. You know, you've got to have the relationships to go to record labels, publishers, and independent musicians and let them know what's going on and, you know, send them the information to, to clear the music and get the permission. And then lastly, there's the licensing process, which most supervisors would rather wish to avoid. But, you know, sure. when, when you're working on independent film, you got to do it all. Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, uh, the majority of people listening to this, uh, by far the vast majority, are musicians. And, the you know, I'm yet to meet a musician who doesn't, who, who isn't certain, uh, myself included, that they've got a one or, or many great tracks that would just be perfect for uh, a movie. Um, and the question, of course, becomes, what can a musician do to better their chances of landing uh, a placement in terms of approaching you and in terms of uh, how, how they uh, essentially present themselves, present the music, and how uh, how a mu- what can a musician do to go about getting your attention and ultimately landing a spot in a film? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, John, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm relatively you know, on my way up the ladder in terms of the world of music supervisors, but I'll give you a quick you know, story of Kevin Adelman you know, does a lot of music surprises, a lot of shows for CBS and the, the guy who I apprentice for, um, you know, he, as an example to kind of demonstrate how competitive it is, you know, would go to, to a billboard event, um, where he would speak on a panel about music supervision. And literally after coming off the, you know, podium, there, there would be like an onslaught or, or, or an on, you know, rush of people, you know, like shoving, packages and tapes, you know, in his face and in, in, in his hand. Like, it, it's when radio kind of became mechanized into big, huge, clear channel automated playlists and no longer really uh, became an opportunity for, for 99% of bands to get their music on radio, sure. the TV and film sort of became a radio channel. And so... Uh, with with the ability for musicians to to very easily create a record, you know, there's there's just a huge lot of music that is available. There's so much music available, and music supervisors sort of seen as a gateway. So, you know, I, I could say that one way not to do it is to just sort of you know rear up on somebody and slam them with the music and try to try to do it in that way. I don't think it worked for Kevin, and, and it's it's a challenge to to me. What I would say is that you know I, I do run into to you know, guys like you who make music and, and put out records, and people who are even putting out their first record. And you know, my my recommendation is to like try to under, understand us as people. You know, like I when I become invested in your story or I get to know you as a person, I'm, my ears are going to be a little more open to you know what you've got. You know what you you've got to say about music or what you'd like to share with me about music. Uh, there's, you know, like there's a number of different ways that I that I am open to getting music. I, um, I develop lots of relationships with record labels, publishers, and admin groups that pitch music to music supervisors. But I also run into a lot of guys uh, and and women who are just, you know, like that they make music. And and I think for me, it's, a, it's sort of about if I, if I were to give advice to a musician, it's sort of like it, instead of collecting stats and collecting objects and collecting equipment, you know, like today it seems to me that the most important thing you can do is to collect good relationships with people. And it's 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 the networking 
process that does well. So when someone writes me a really nice personal email that just, you know, pops in my inbox and says, hey, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, and they're really polite and sort of uh, aware of what I'm facing with the volume of music and, and still put it out there in a way that's human, uh, that kind of helps break through the clutter. But also like going to where music supervisors hang out, whether it's at live shows or you know through friends and, and just trying to like kind of get into the proximity or into the sphere of the person's world and then you can build a little bit of a rapport and then I'm going to be, you know, like after this show, I, I might, you know, much more inclined to say, hey, like what are you doing musically these days because I've got something to, you know, a basis to work off of, you know? Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, you touched on it there with email. I was going to say that one of the sort of obstacles is that many musicians, um, especially listening to this, are spread out all over the world. It's easy when you're in Los Angeles or New York to uh, really hit the town. And, and uh, in fact, just about anyone who's got any modicum of talent who lives in one of those cities, after enough time, they typically have a nice sort of network of, of people in the business. But when you're in another country or maybe a smaller city in the U.S., um, that's that's difficult. Um, I was going to ask, and, and you and you did touch on it. Uh, can that be done uh, via email? Are you do you have you found yourself receptive to that kind of communication if someone sends an email out of the blue and and just says, "Hey, this is who I am," and and effectively, can I send you some music? Yeah, it's really great that you asked that because uh, it was se several months ago when I got an email from a kid named Jono, uh, J-O-N-O, and uh, just, you know, it wasn't a form email. It was very personalized, and it was very positive, and he was from Scotland. And, you know, the first thought that went to my, you know, you got to hit the delete button because what are you going to do with this? But you kind of said, gosh, this guy took the time to reach me from Scotland, and, you know, I don't have... I can I can certainly research and find music from Scotland by going out to my network of resources, but uh, you know there was something personal and human about somebody reaching out from Scotland, or if someone did that from Africa or or you know Saint Petersburg, and then he called me. You know, like I I can't remember. I must have responded to his email, and my phone number was at the bottom with my company information, and bam, like this number comes in, it's from the UK, I had a really fun conversation with him, mm -hmm. gave him, you know, some of the best advice I could, but, it, you know, I can't say that I could spend my whole day doing that, because no one could afford to and still run sure. a business, but uh, I, I, I'd like to think that every music supervisor knows that, you know, musicians have to start somewhere, and if the approach is done in a humane way, and if I think that the other thing that you have to remember here, you know, I just recently read an article about um, talent, focus, and endurance. And I would say that, like, it, it, you've got to have talent. That's a prerequisite to, you know, for your music to be heard. It's got to, you know, it's got to not suck. But, um, you know, being focused and being able to, to maintain endurance in this business is really important. If it doesn't work getting a hold of me, you know, obviously, you can't quit. You've got to be in it for the long run and be disciplined every day and try to expand that network, collect as many people onto your team as you can from record labels, publishers, music supervisors. There's so many different pathways to roam. Sure, that's a that's a good point. I certainly see it a lot, be it with something like uh, music licensing or be it something like just music marketing in general. I see a lot of people that go out and you know, take one or two steps and then throw up their hands and say it doesn't work. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, as a musician, I, I didn't get a record deal 
uh, on day three. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, it was years and years and years of pounding and all of these strategies, uh, uh, anything, you know, it, it's very unlikely that it's going to happen right out of the gate, regardless of how good your music is. And, and uh, I'm sure music uh, licensing is a much tougher game than simply uh, music promotion or music marketing. So um, that's a good point. Um, you know, now just breaking that down to brass tacks, because I, I know this is something that uh, has popped up a lot. And I've actually even when I've gone out and done this process of, of reaching out to music supervisors and press, I've kind of always had these doubts lingering in the back of my mind about what the best approach is. Do you recommend that people send links to their music in that very first email, even if it's done subtly? Uh, or do you recommend that people keep it purely human and literally just say hi and maybe ask for a little advice? Yeah, that's also a good question. I, I don't, I don't have a, a hard and fast rule on that. I mean, um, I, I'm the type of compulsive character that will pretty quickly click on a sound cloud. Uh, you know, my curiosity is just killing me. Sure. So, you know, I, I feel like I can, I can tell in a couple of minutes whether it's going to move me or not, um, or whether, you know, whether it, it has the legs to stand up. So, uh, but either way it works, you know, if someone's being really respectful, I, I kind of appreciate that as well. But if it's really convenient for me to click and, and, you know, I press this thing and it sounds like the next coming of Black Sabbath Christ, you know, I'm like, oh, right on, man. You know, like I right. probably respond right away or, or, you know, maybe it's a singer songwriter that just, you know, has, you know, is channeling Johnny Cash or, or, you know, whatever it is. But, um, I think it can work either way, but again, it's like, you know, like you were saying earlier, you got to keep knocking on the dojo door. And, uh, it's a business of closed doors and you got to look and see what's working and what isn't, you know. For, for, for me, it's about seeing bands live. I still love to do that and it's my background and, and something I'll probably never get out of my system, but that's another great way for me to, you know, really connect with the band. So, um, it can come from so many different angles. Like, if, for you personally, if if uh, someone who is representing you contacted me professionally, I kind of respect that because you end up having, like, as a music supervisor, you have trusted sources, and there are some libraries that don't have good music, and there are some folks who they don't know about the the you know music legal issues that go into licensing and they may, may not be trustworthy in terms of licensing their music and whether they completely have the rights or not. So there's trusted brands. And if your name comes to me through somebody I know or I've heard of it before or it's a, it's a representative and it gets me thinking like it's a little hard to do business with, um, you know, amateur musicians because they don't entirely understand the ramifications of what it means to license their song or they're not used to the custom of, what would be appropriate money for a specific license. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. Um, it makes me, I, I can't help but draw parallels uh, between the approach that you would take with someone like yourself and, and the sort of direct response marketing approach that we're, that we're talking about over uh, on my site. But um, effectively, one of the things that we're doing that's different than musicians have traditionally done is we don't sort of put these music billboards out there with lots of links to click and uh, pictures to see and songs to sample and, and instead start with a squeeze page to get a person's contact uh, information so that we can start to build a relationship and typically don't push any product until several emails into that relationship. Um, and 
there, while, while I hear what you're saying about uh, you click on a link and if it's amazing, you might be drawn in right away, I can't help but wonder about all the other stuff that, while it may be completely solid, may not have that immediate appeal and the relationship might that you that someone may be able to form might ultimately be the trump card in that it might get that person those extra 10 seconds of listening uh that will make you fall in love with it or will will anchor it in your mind so that uh when when that next opportunity pops up uh, you go to them uh, meaning taking singer songwriters for example there are a lot of singer songwriters out there with a somewhat similar sound uh, that may not immediately jump out at you over another singer-songwriter. However, uh, it's all getting used in various capacities. And so, yeah, I just uh, I don't mean to focus so long on should they send the music or should they not, but I feel like that's the first mistake or uh, or 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 what's the opposite of a mistake or or a successful tactic that people are going to make in this process. And I, I feel like you know they're going to sort of succeed or fail right out of the gate 99% of the time so i'm just really curious about that yeah i mean it's it's actually really interesting you, it, it could suffer from making that it could suffer by putting the music first and then you never get past the conversation but i don't i just i, I know i know it's important to try to seek uh you know practical pragmatic approaches like i don't see it as a Direct science because a band could put it out that way uh, to me, and maybe um, they didn't include music, but maybe they do have a rep who's also trying to reach me, and maybe they are playing in LA, and I'm invited to the show because I always appreciate the invitation to see somebody live. To sure. me, it's it's fun, and so you know, like it would be hard to just. I, I think if you're trying to narrow it down to any one action, did it provide? ultimate success or ultimate failure. I, I don't really think that any one action can bear the weight of that responsibility, you know? Like sure, it's, sure. it's a whole series of things. But I, I, I guess to answer your question, I don't mind when there's a link to music and I don't mind when someone um, has reached out to say, would you like to hear more? I, 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 I guess I would teeter a little bit more towards wanting to hear the music myself first because doing the introduction and and in and approaching it in that way is is great and it is a very humane way personal way to reach me but it it also requires another step and as you know through email marketing or anything else that like when you ask people to keep clicking one further page in one further page in one further page in you lose like a third of the people every time you go another layer deep sure so um you know, it's there are going to be some time, you know, I'm very mood driven. So when I'm in the mood to receive music, I'll, you know, I'm down with it. I'll click on it and I'll check it out. But if it requires a number of steps to figure out what the person wants, I think that it can suffer that way too. I'm not going to, I just don't have the time to go down the rabbit hole that far, you know. Sure. Well, cool. Sometimes a video, like I think the effect of video can be, Entirely, like this whole new idea. I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but you know, people are trading music by YouTube link. You know, you know, like MP3s clog up your email. So now it's and it's going to happen in Spotify, but you know, like shared playlists and stuff. But like, you know, if you were like Joe, check this out, and you sent me a YouTube link, it's um, 
to me to see the band. I get to see what the band looks like. I get to hear the music, and we just love clicking on images, don't we? So much more than like down, downloading something. So that that could be the answer. There. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I get uh, you know quite a lot of email each day, and I'm a lot more prone. I, I don't think I've ever not clicked on a video just to sort of see what popped up. Whereas there have been times where a track comes through, and I just don't really have time to. Or I'm not motivated, I suppose, to, to click on it. So that's a good point. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. It occurs to me, I, I had, I've only had one or two people do this, but it was really impactful when it happened where someone actually went and made a video just for me. And they were there in their webcam just saying, hey, John, uh, I'm a fan of what you're doing or whatever it was. And then and then they you know ultimately segue to their product and in this capacity i'm talking about me as a, a mu uh, music marketing consultant where people maybe they have a product that they like me to share with my list uh and they make that specific video just for me i can see their face i can see their expressions and then they'll they'll segue into their uh product and tell me more about what they're doing and and like i said it's only happened once or twice but it was really impactful it was hard not to just completely stand out from the crowd and in this in this one instance that's coming to mind I, I did I said sure let's do it you know I was I was eager just because of the effort the guy took have you ever had anybody do anything like that yeah it's I mean it speaks to the human we were just kind of you know touching on that a little bit but I mean it, it's uh we I think you know, you want to help people you, you do and, and so having a that's a just a really great effort I mean talk about knocking on the dojo door like it's you know, sending a personalized video is a great idea. As long as it doesn't look desperate, you know, that's also, sure. you know, like it's, it's one of those things like pheromones. Like you, you see a picture of somebody and you're watching a singer-songwriter, whether it's a he or a she, playing an instrument to you in a video and you're kind of looking at them and trying to figure out what their makeup is and, you know, you're curious and you're you're forming these assessments in your mind about, if they've caught a cool vibe or do they have a really meaningful, uh, you know, do they come from a really meaningful place when they're, you know, drawing from the creative well or do they play the guitar with a certain shtick and those things are those like undescribed, indescribable things that they kind of pile up in you and they make an evaluation of why, you, you know, oh, that guy reminds me of Iggy Pop or like, look at it, like person looks like they had a tough upbringing but they're saying it, you know, like, or, or it could be anything, it could be beautiful or but that's those are those little things that make the connections in us, and then you then you want to be a fan of it, and then you turn around like, hey, well, I'm, I, you know, I've given this my my personal emotional stamp of approval, so now I'm going to try to pitch it to the director and producer. Sure, sure. And I, I used to um, book bands and be a, a club promoter years back, and I know that uh, for myself, uh, one of the things that's always sort of appealing, and I, I'm not actually put this into conscious thought until just now, but you're always sort of subconsciously looking for that story. I know that I've discovered, uh, you know, in quotes, uh, certain bands along the way, and when I discovered them in an interesting way, and there was sort of a story that became immediately apparent to me, be it, be it that video story that I just mentioned, or uh, any number of different things that, that might come about when you're first experiencing music. I think when, when, when a person can conceive of a way to introduce themselves that in itself becomes an interesting story. I think uh, a lot of sort of magic takes place there and it really, uh, you know, it's a great way to connect. But It's so true. I mean, you, you look at, you can like Deborah Harry and you're just like, it's, these are the iconic people that you're dying to know the story. You want to know more. You watch Oasis get up on stage and they've just, you know, the, 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 
show comes at you like a wall of sound. You just want to be a part of that, and you, who knows what to attribute all those little things, but you want to know more about, you know, how Iggy Pop became such a mess or why Deborah Harry is so uh, intriguing or, or, or any of those things. And it, just, sure. it can be said. There's a new band called Beirut that I love. I just saw them perform at the Outside Lands, and there's so much collegiate music out there, you know, right now. It's, it's um, so competitive, but... I hadn't heard of bands. I, I showed up there on a side stage up in San Francisco, a huge festival. It must have been 80,000 people, and, uh, <clears throat> or at least 65,000 people, and, it, and they played it. It was just like this you know, the, the young guy up front, and you know, you know, he, um, he lived in France for a while and spent some time in Albuquerque, so he had, you know, it's just a, a wonderful combination of like Balkan music with French influences from a kid that grew up in America, and it's just, you know, you wanted to know his story. You know, you, sure. wanted, you wanted to be on his side and be a part of it right away. Cool. Well, um, moving on from sort of the, the, the initial approach, what type of advice might you have about the, the songs themselves, the mixes, the recording quality? You know, uh, I, I know that's something a lot of folks focus on. Are there certain types of songs that uh, people are going to have more success with? Are there, uh, I, I, obviously, I think it, goes without saying that the recording quality is important, but I'm sure you're still uh, probably bombarded with recordings that are subpar. Uh, are are there um, what do you, what what advice might you have about the different mixes that someone is going to want to make sure they have available going into their next recording project? Do you have any advice on those fronts? Um, yeah, the, the sound quality itself just needs to um, you know generally be be good enough for me to not notice that it's horrible. I don't, I don't have, uh, there's not a, a, a level, you know, like if, if I hear it and I know that it was recorded poorly and I can sense that, then I'll, I'll ask what, you know, I'll say what's up with this or, you know, what happened to the recording. But I will tell you that like a lot of this currency is being done in MP3 and, and, and that's how these directors are, you know, we're all transferring the music editor, the director, and I are sending MP3s back and forth. We'll send YouTube links. So there's a wide range of rec- recording quality, and we don't use the wave file until the mix when everything's been locked in and the choices have been made, and then they want a high resolution file. So you know, as you know, rock and roll is not rocket science, and there's a lot of grittiness in it, and you know that fuzz and that those undertones, or maybe it sounds like it's distant, like that. That could really add to what makes it desirable um, in the TV or film project. So if it sounds intentionally bad or, or, or it's problematic for me to hear what musical idea that the artist is trying to represent, then yes. But mo- most, you know, most everything I get is in that you know, middle range or better that allows me to know what's going on. So the, that's, you know, that's what I feel about the quality of, of the songs. But... Uh, uh, what else were we asking besides um, the uh, actual... well mixes, for example? Uh, what about vocal ups, uh, TV mixes? You know the various things. What what are the different types of mixes that a person wants to make sure that they have? Um, and if they don't have them, does that stand in the way of of getting the gig? Yeah, I did two things. I never want. I never really need instrumentals because I if usually they'll love the song and then just say, hey, I, this works, but the dialogue in the film is fighting with 
the vocal. So can you get an instrumental version? It always works that way backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't ever hear someone say, hey, can you send me a bunch of great instrumentals and maybe <laughs> we'll work our way into finding if the song is any good. It doesn't happen. And also don't send, you know, I, I would recommend not sending, you know, like mashups or cover songs or remixes that I can't clear because I just instantly you know, toss it in the trash because, I mean, it, that, that's not entirely true, but if it's a, I have to go clear the publishing for that, you know, song by Usher or whoever that might require four or five layers of permission for me mm-hmm. to get it. So, you know, sending stuff that is a nightmare for me to clear in the first place is also a really challenging way to start that conversation. All right, so that's the first half of the interview I recently did with Joe Paganelli. Uh, we went on for you know quite a while there, a good almost 40 minutes or so. Um, and believe it or not, there's another 40 minutes. Uh, if anyone's interested in hearing the rest of that call, you can head over to the Insider Circle and check that out. That's in the uh, Insider Interview section, the entire interview. Um, if you're not familiar with the Insider Circle, it's just basically a mastermind community of musicians, uh, and each month there's a training module, Insider Interviews. There's also a mastermind forum where people can privately discuss all things uh, related to selling and marketing music. Uh, you can learn more about that at musicmarketingmanifesto.com forward slash insider circle. Um, what do you think of that, Steve? I, I really thought that that was, uh, was really interesting. I mean, like I said, I didn't know, have any knowledge whatsoever about that part of the music industry, but I really liked what he had to say about uh, you know, older musicians sort of, you know, you, you you do that for long enough and you kind of feel like the older statesman and, and you're looking for a way to still provide value to the to the marketplace and, and kind of uh, pass the torch along or at least uh, pave a way for, for younger musicians. I really thought that that was awesome because I, I think that really ties into a lot of what uh, you're sharing with the Music Marketing Manifesto is that this this is no longer – you have to be uh, young and good looking to, to to make a life for yourself in music. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Yeah, I I like that. You know, at the end of the day, it sort of all boils down to those relationships. It really, you know, sure. it really points out how important that is, and that everybody's human. Because I think there's too much focus, particularly in marketing circles, on these tricks and strategies. Nobody really wants to put in that work, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone wants to somehow press a button, sign up for a service, and pay $4 and uh, become a rock star. And, you know, it takes some smarts. It takes some class. It takes being a real person who's out there doing stuff and offering value. Um, you know, if and if I'm to sort of shoot straight or, or I guess, uh, you know, expose my own flaws. Um, I think that's one of the things I really failed at with my first Interscope deal is, uh, I, I had been this dude who worked so hard at getting that deal. You know, I was a club promoter. I was out there in the bars six nights a week, constantly, uh, stirring up interest, writing songs, performing, networking with other musicians. And then when I got the deal, it wasn't that I got lazy. I didn't get lazy, I, but I, I did look to someone else's leadership. And so much of that ac- activity uh, that I generated was about getting that deal. It was about building the hype, and it wasn't about just creating a groundswell of activity for, for me and my product. And, uh, you know, I think what he's touching on there is just if you're if you become 
this force as a musician. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're 16 or fit the mold of what people are signing perfectly. Uh, all it really requires is that you're a real person out there doing cool stuff and, you know, reaching out to people. And it just becomes, I, I think most musicians sort of lead with, hey, I'm a musician. Uh, I, I write songs in some really cool fashion. You should listen to them and help make me famous. You know, when you boil it down, that's sort of the approach when we reach out to mm-hmm. anyone, be it a record label, a music supervisor, a club promoter, a, a, you know, a blog for a review, whatever that is. And, uh, that I've just experienced this, particularly as things have blossomed with Music Marketing Manifesto, because this is something that I am—I I really do feel I'm out there creating this groundswell, and I, I've got so much activity, I don't need to even ask for uh, help with this. It's just sort of happening, and, and I kind of, I guess I've recently been thinking about this and kicking myself because I should have been applying that mentality in the early days of my music career. And and I, I guess what I'm getting at is when it comes to something like music uh, supervising or music supervisors and getting their attention, if, if you're out there making waves and uh, selling out uh, clubs locally, it just becomes such a, a more natural dialogue and such a more natural conversation when you reach out to people and the reception is so much more intense. Um, to give you an example, uh, you know, I reached out to Joe, Joe, because I was doing something that was independent. I didn't need him. I had an opportunity opportunity of sorts obviously he he helped out tremendously and brought a lot of value to me and not not sort of trying to suggest otherwise but um you know i had a momentum of my own and we got to talking carved out a relationship and and after the interview he invited me to submit some of my tunes and it just kind of i think echoes the point that he made that it's really about those real relationships and and like we're always talking about just having uh, creating value for yourself as a musician is that a too airy fairy or long winded of an of an explanation of what I'm ultimately trying to say? Are you tracking with me? No, I think it's dead on to what you're trying to say. And another example is the fact that you and I are sitting on this call right now as well, because that's sort of what you just explained was kind of how you and I uh, came to know each other. Was we were kind of doing something similar uh, with a similar audience in mind, and through that process. You know, like you, like you said, Joe brought some value to you. Obviously, I reached out to you uh, some some time back, and you brought a ton of value to me. Uh, and it wasn't because uh, of anything other than uh, it, the interaction seemed to be the kind of thing where, you know, you felt like you were dealing with a real person. It wasn't uh, – I wasn't trying to beat you over the head with some kind of opportunity. And the same thing as when you approached Joe. It wasn't – you didn't make it about you, you know? Sure. Sure. Um, Sorry, go on. And I, one of the things that I was going to say was really uh, refreshing about that interview is that uh, you know you think about the, the role of the music supervisor, and you, you understand as a musician that ultimately that's going to be somebody that's going to help you get a large amount of exposure or placement or that sort of thing. And you always wonder about you know what is it that makes those things happen for you uh, through a music supervisor. What I thought was really refreshing was what he was saying was that sometimes you just get to an email and it's like, oh, I really want to go check out this person's stuff. And I'm sure it's got a lot to do with the fact that he loves what he does for a living. Sure. Um, because, you know, that kind of, in my mind, took a lot of mystery and a lot of, like, the pressure that you would normally feel. You know, you submit something to somebody and you sit there with your fingers crossed 
when here it's not really about what you were submitting. It was about how you approached uh, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Well, very cool. Um, once again, that was Joe Paganelli from Shovelhead Media, uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll be doing something with Joe again in the future. Um, we've got so many questions here. I I don't think we're going to get through all of these once again. Um, but let's let's start firing these up and. Uh, let's see where they take us. I have not sort of scanned these or anything before we've we've uh, you know started recording. I didn't do any prep. It's very early in the morning here, for the record. <laughs> my coffee is yet to really permeate my bloodstream. Um, but let's uh, let's fire that first one up, Steve, if you don't mind, and let's see what we got. Yeah, I love these. They're exciting. So here we go. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Hey, John, how you doing? My name is Corey Jaffo, a.k.a. J-O-C. And I've been a professional lead doing music over four years now. And in that time, I've had a lot done. You know, my record label name copywritten without my submission by someone else. False contracts presented, and most recently, all my ideals and the complete concepts of who I am and what I'm about being mimicked by a label slash group that I left slash top dropped, you know. <laughs> now, four years later... After one mixtape, six mixtape features, two album features, multiple award show nominations, many press releases, songs on the radio stations, and no album out yet because of the above mentioned, not because of the material. Now I'm pretty much starting over. I moved back to the good old USA to pursue my solo career farther, but it's been harder. With no connection to the studio, no manager, no producer, it's like I'm back where I started. But I've learned a lot in this journey, you know. Most of the ins and outs of the music business I, I've seen a lot in my, you know, making my rounds. Now that I've sort of filled you in on where I'm at in my life, my question is, should I continue to struggle to pursue my career through music marketing or knowing that I'm going to see success regardless? Or should I put all my efforts into getting paid for helping others develop by ghostwriting, PR, and managing, etc.? That's also gaining connections and experience to further my career, but not until I've completed what was paid for, obviously, and for what was promised by myself. Uh, John, what do you think? Uh, what do you think you would do, or I should do, in my situation? You know, I'm just wondering, what, what would you do if you were in my shoes? Uh, thanks again, John. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. And sorry, everyone else, for such a, you know, such such talk for little questions. And if you would like to know more about me and my life and my music, you can check me out at www.revermation.com slash J-O-C. Thanks again, Victoria J. And P.S., before you answer, keep in mind, I just lost my job two weeks ago due to cutbacks. My rent's overdue, phone bill tomorrow, so my life checks are already gone. So I'm in a bind, and I'm just trying to figure out which direction I should take and which one to see the best course. Thanks again. Well, okay, so, yeah, lot, lots of stuff going on there. First, uh, first thing, you know, you mentioned, okay, there's a couple things. You mentioned that you're in financial straits right now. You lost your job, and income's an issue, and you got bills to pay and all that. Um, my advice is always to stop the bleeding first. Uh, you know, you, you 
you want to get focused on bringing some income in. I'm not sure if you're at, you're mentioning that in relation to what you should do, uh, you know, because often people are saying, I only have three weeks worth of income on hand or, you know, uh, money to survive. Uh, should I turn my focus onto music and try to generate that income, you know, in that short amount of time. I think it's very hard, obviously, to generate income in the arts as compared to other fields. So I'd say stop the bleeding first. Two, should you should you quit uh, in favor of teaching other artists? I don't think so. I don't think I'll ever probably give that advice um, at least publicly. Um, you know, music's, we don't do this because it's the it's the most likely path to success or financial reward. We do it because we're musicians, we're artists. We've got that calling, and uh, that's that's what we've got to do with our lives. So I don't think one should ever stop pursuing that. Um, t as far as teaching others, uh, you know, by all means, that that is rewarding to you. Do that as well. That's that's kind of where I'm at, and that's uh, what I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm very active still as a musician. I'm, Actually, just about, I got the final uh, mix on my final track for my fourth album. So I'm in the studio, you know, finishing that up. And, and I'm also teaching musicians through Music Marketing Manifesto. So I, I think uh, absolutely both can be rewarding. Um, setting that one aside and just going back to your music career, uh, what would I do? I mean, I'm kind of in many regards in that situation or have been in that situation. I had major label deals and... Uh, you know, look like it, I was going to be the next big thing, and that didn't happen. And uh, I had to, you know, make some decisions about how I was going to move forward. And my decision was to create a system that relied on absolutely no one else. And I, fin financial successes aside, and I don't mean to push it aside because I know it's so important to so many people, I don't think that's the primary goal. I think the primary goal is to create a funnel, to create a pipeline uh, even, where you've got an audience waiting for your stuff. And that, and that audience is either maintaining or growing. Whether that audience is 200 people or 2 million people, uh, that's my goal anyway, is to make sure that I've got a pipeline of people that I have a direct line of communication to. Typically, I'm talking about email, but social media factors into that, uh, who I can continue to make music for. So I've got my tribe, and I'm making music for those people, and I'm organizing those people through my sales funnel, which, again, is email, social media, website, that all those different components that we're always talking about. Um, and that is not hard to do. And once you have that, and many people have talked about this in the Insider Circle. You just get those first 40 fans, those first 40, 50 subscribers, and you got something. And they're emailing you back when you send them out a track. And you've got that pipeline. And that is extraordinarily rewarding. And anyone can do that. Then it becomes about expanding. And that's where you know developing your skills in marketing come in. And they can take those 50 people and turn them into 50,000 people. Because once you've got that model, once you've got that funnel, it really is just a matter of traffic and conversions to expand it. And, and while it's confusing when you're new to it, once you sort of can see the forest through the trees, it's really not that difficult. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's that's my advice. Don't quit. Focus on building your own audience, your own tribe, 
uh, and more in more brass tacks terms uh, creating a sales funnel so that you can get your music out to those people on a regular basis and and generate some profit and you know heck if you only make a thousand dollars a year then make that your budget for your next album if you have to get some favors uh, or a pro tools rig and do it yourself then you know just make yourself profitable on whatever scale you can and then expand your traffic uh, when, once you're profitable and you'll see an expand expansion in profits and uh, it's incredibly rewarding and that's a hundred percent of where my focus is at you got anything uh, to add there Steve I do. I, I really love this question, uh, A, for, for having the courage to ask it, but secondly, the way that he asked it, uh, it's very clear that uh, as much as you know, he, he may still have a bit of a hang-up over some, some bad things that may have happened to him in the past, he, he, he clearly understands that it's on him to, to make the change, and the yeah. fact that he's got the courage to ask, I, you know, I really commend him for that. Um, you know, not to trivialize the things that have happened in his past. Uh, it really sounds unfortunate. Uh, take some solace in the fact that if they took it from you, it wasn't theirs to have in the first place. They can't keep it either. Um, and through the process, through everything that he's been through, just the fact that he knows that he still has the ability within himself to be a musician performer, but he also has, sounds like he's got some of these other skills that are so useful and valuable to other people and even given the fact that, you know, you may be challenged a bit w with income or, you know, just having funds at the moment, he's really in a really wonderful place right now. And the fact that he's starting, you know, we all go through the crossroads, but he's starting from a place where he has all these, you know, abilities that he's acquired over the years to enrich the lives of others and in turn enrich his own life as a musician. Uh, and to, to answer his question the best that I can without rambling on too long here is that, He's in a place now where it's a matter of just adding another skill set to the ones that he's already got that's really going to push him in the right direction. And, um, you know, he's not going to have to ask anybody else in the future what he should do, whether he should quit or whether he should keep moving, because he's going to know the answer is to keep moving and keep doing what he's doing. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a great response. Uh, why don't you cue us uh, another one of these questions up and let's keep plowing forward. Okay, here we go. Hi, John. This is Amy calling from Sounds of Simplicity. And my question is, if you were in my shoes and you were starting from scratch and people didn't know your name, um, what strategy of the strategies that you provide in your class would you focus on most? I know it's kind of a loaded question, but um, that's my one question, I have another one, and, and that is, what kind of percentage should you be seeing in subscribers? So if you are on Twitter and you have X number of followers, what percentage of those do you want to see converting and signing up to get the track? And if you're not seeing that, you know, what are some key things that you would look at doing differently, um, you know, time of day or tweaking the the uh, sign-up box or different things like that. So um, I'm trying that strategy and I'm trying the article marketing. Also, um, you know, wanting to see more sign-ups but not seeing them. So what specific things would you look at changing uh, in the approach? And thanks for for the class. Thanks for the opportunity for the podcast. Enjoy your work. So 
Thanks so much. Those are good questions. Um, okay, hopefully I can remember all of them. Keep me on point here, Steve, if, if I um, forget some of the, the questions. What she, what I believe she's referring to, just to clear everything up, I've got a course called Music Marketing Manifesto. And in that course there, I, I teach a marketing strategy. It's effectively direct response marketing for musicians, um, direct response. Response marketing has been around for a very, very long time, since the 1800s, since the advent of the printing press, essentially. Um, but there are some tweaks uh, on that because selling music is a little different than selling traditional products. Um, in that course, I teach a number of traffic strategies because traffic is part of that. We're talking about traffic and offer and uh, ultimately uh, additional offers after that initial sale. Um, so I think she's asking which traffic strategy I would uh, I would I would take on if it was you know if I was starting from scratch. My honest answer, and this is probably you know this is sort of one of those do as I say not as I do kind of things. I I do pay per click advertising because it's fast and I have a budget to work with and I'm lazy. Um, but uh, yeah, pay-per-click uh, or PPC is risky and you should know what you're doing before you dive too far into it or or at least be a person who pays a lot of attention to analytics and metrics and that sort of thing. I have had a number of members who've done very well with it right out of the gate, but they are at least as I'm seeing all those kinds of personalities, people who pay a lot of attention to stats and details and, and they're doing well with it. Um, because pay-per-click, you know, is is just very a very fast way to build your list, and you know, you get the right campaign, you can see hundreds of even potentially thousands of people in a day if you throw enough money at it. Um, but again, you need to have that sales funnel dialed in so that you're making sure that you're profiting and not actually losing money. And uh, across the board in all markets, people are more people are losing money than making money. At least, uh, at least in the people that I've talked to. Um, it, it really is a skill set. If I wasn't going to do that, I'd I'd basically probably go out and use article marketing. That's another strategy that we talk about in the uh, course. I've done very well with that. What I like about article marketing is that it's just a matter of putting in some muscle and you'll see return. It is time consuming, but once you develop a profitable strategy, you can outsource that. Now, the only caveat to that is that I might take that a little bit further um, because because I am experienced online. I can throw websites up very quickly. I do have an understanding of search engine optimization. I might go and create my own sites uh, and pu publish that content to my own sites and pull in traffic that way. The reason we use sites like Easy and Articles is because they're already established sites and they already have you know a, a decent standing within the search engines, and so your content is going to um, do much better on the average article uh, directory uh, right out of the gate than it is on a fresh new site for most of you. Um, so um, my simple answer is that if, if I wasn't going to throw money at something, I'd probably try article marketing. Um, if I uh, did have a budget to work with, it would definitely be pay-per-click advertising. Um, she she asked, "What was the next part of that question, Steve?" I was going to say a large part of her question seemed, at least the way that I understood it, was uh, the different traffic sources and how they convert. Um, she said she's not seeing the subscribers that she'd like to see, but she, you know, she's got, you know, how, out of how many Facebook, uh, you know, friends should you expect to see subscribers, or how many Twitter followers, and 
Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I remember. You're right. Uh, and, and that's a totally good question. I'll be totally honest. I have not tracked Twitter subscribers. There's a Twitter traffic strategy in the course. I've not tracked the number of people I followed versus the people who have signed up. I actually haven't done that, and I should. I'm, I'm just often, again, lazy with that kind of thing. What I do um, track is the conversion rates of people who land on my squeeze pages. And what I like to see out of a squeeze page, and again, anyone who's new to squeeze pages, uh, a specific type of page that is designed to do nothing else uh, other than offer something in exchange for contact information. It's not a content-rich site with links to your music and videos and anything like that. It's just a very simple page that states one offer, which for us is usually free music in exchange for an email address so that we can start to build that relationship. Uh, but uh, I track those conversion rates, and kind of regardless of the traffic source, I like to see over certainly over 20%. Occasionally, it's lower. Um, often, it's much higher. I've had on JV offers, things convert as high as 90%. But usually, with well, at least with my last Facebook campaign, for example, I was converting around 25%. About 25% of the people to come to my squeeze page were signing up for the free track. Um, and that's that's probably a solid average. Um, if you can get it up over 30, then you're doing really good. If you get it up over 40, you're doing excellent. And rather than um, concerning myself with how many of those followers are actually taking the action, I just look at the amount of effort that I'm sort of putting into each traffic strategy and then look at that conversion rate and just ask myself for an hour's worth of my time messing with Twitter, am I getting as many subscribers as I'm getting for an hour's worth of my time with article marketing? And if you try a number of different traffic strategies, and remember, there are a lot of them out there. There are many more than just in Music Marketing Manifest, so there's probably, you know, a nearly endless amount of, uh, or uh, an endless amount of traffic strategies out there, uh, but those are some of the main ones that I've used in the course. Um, but but if one thing is not working uh, for the amount of time I'm putting in, then I, I just move on uh, and focus on the other one. That's why there are multiple traffic strategies in there. You know, put in. Uh, eight hours worth of time into Twitter, put in eight hours worth of time into creating content for the article directories and see how many subscribers you get for each one. I do typically create a squeeze page for each traffic source. I'll create duplicate or very, very similar offers uh, and create a unique squeeze page and just drive all my Twitter traffic to that one squeeze page or all my article marketing traffic to another squeeze page or all my pay-per-click advertising to a different squeeze page, reason being that AWeber um, allows you to create an endless number of um, web forms, those sign-up forms that you see where people enter their name and email address. Um, you can create an endless number of those, so I'll put a unique one on each uh, squeeze page for each traffic source and just track it right there in AWeber, and it works very, very well. Uh, again, uh, people have different levels of experience with what we're talking about here. If anyone's unfamiliar with AWeber, it's just an autoresponder that I use and you can learn more about them at musicmarketingmanifesto.com forward slash autoresponder. Um, so did that, did I, am I leaving anything out there, Steve? No, I think you pretty well covered it. I mean, if I could throw in uh, just a thought here, uh, yeah. and this is something we've mentioned before is that you definitely want to a make sure that your mechanism works properly. If, if you're not seeing enough subscribers and you're throwing a ton of traffic, definitely get in there and see if something's not broken somewhere mm -hmm. uh, as far as when people sign up or if they're not actually going in into 
confirm that they actually own that email address, um, it, that could be a problem. But uh, as far as the traffic source, and I haven't done any case studies to back this up. I'm actually just going off of uh, an intuitive kind of uh, a feel for this is that uh, what you said about, you know, am I getting more bang for my buck for the hour that I'm putting into article marketing versus the hour that I spend on Twitter? I think that you're going to find from traffic sources, if it's a, a content sort of rich traffic source, I think that's generally going to convert better uh, because in which case they either found it by somebody referring it to uh, the person um, who thought that they might find it to be really interesting or they actually found it themselves through a search engine somehow. Uh, they are actually actively searching for content that was related to uh, obviously the content that you put out in the world. So I think you're going to see that stuff like articles may convert much better as a traffic strategy than you know a casual 145 character tweet. Right. If, if that makes any sense, any sense to you at all. Right. And just to um, actually uh, clarify something, by the sound of it, I'm not sure. It sounded like she was actually getting some traffic because I got the impression that she was concerned about that conversion rate, which indicates that there is some traffic in the first place. Um, and if if that's the case, if you're getting traffic and just not seeing as many subscribers, then something is wrong in the offer because there's only a few places this can really break down. It's you're either you're not getting enough traffic, and and if that's the case, you need to change your traffic strategy, or you're not getting enough signups, and if that's the case, you need to change your offer. You need to change the squeeze page. Um, and a lot can be done there, and you'd be surprised how powerful a little change can sometimes be. You change that headline from free download of so-and-so CD to something more engaging that taps into what people are really after, which ultimately is an experience, not not a free download. And, and you know, um, I'm always drawing blank for copy when I'm on the fly like this. I, I can never come up with anything. But an example that I use is something I've got on my squeeze page right now, which is uh, next time you take that road trip down Route 66, make sure you've got John Ojaka on your iPod because I'm kind of trying to tap into that Americana audience. And most people who like Americana have a lot of uh, connection with Route 66. So I'm trying to connect with them based on their passions and interests uh, and lifestyle, not trying to just offer a free download. Uh, they say in marketing all the time, it's the benefit, not the feature. Well, in this case, the download is the feature. The experience that they're going to have, be it a romantic evening, a party, a road trip, whatever that backdrop might be, that's that's the benefit, and that's what people are really uh, after. So if you changed up just that headline, you might uh, sometimes see a conversion rate of, you know, or a bump by 10, 20%. Sometimes it could be literally 100% um, by changing one little thing. Colors can make a difference. Um, you know, an arrow pointing to your opt-in form, maybe making the process clearer. Mm -hmm. uh, additional proof, you know, comments at the bottom yeah. of it, um, reviews, that sort of thing. Any little tweak, but, but sometimes it goes counterintuitive too because demographics are different. If your demographic is, say, you know, 40 years old plus, us on average, then they may respond to very different elements than, you know, teenagers would. So uh, all these things, they need to be tested. And, and uh, you know, that is a little time consuming. But, you know, the beauty of it is once it is in place, then you, uh, you can kind of set it and forget it. It just takes some time to really dial everything in. Um, the other thing, and Steve touched on this, is in, in terms of making sure everything's working. One of the things I'm seeing a lot is people are not customizing those um, 
confirmation messages that go out. And again, just for anyone who doesn't know what the heck we're talking about, when you sign up for most autoresponders, you're required to opt in. This is so that there is what is called an audit trail. And this is so that no one can ever accuse you of violating the Can Spam Act because there are some actually pretty stiff penalties there uh, for emailing people without their permission. Uh, and when they opt in, they click a link and it's all trackable and you've got their IP logged and you can prove that someone did request information from you and they can never accuse you of spam. And they're obviously offered uh, opt-out links with every email and that sort of thing. Everything we're talking about, for the record, is always permission-based. But... uh, that message that goes out once someone signs up, they, they don't get taken immediately. Well, you can set it up this way, but we don't advise that they immediately go to your download page. Instead, they uh, get taken to a thank you page. This is thanks. I'm sending you an email. Just need to make sure you do own that email address. Can you do me a favor and click the link and I'll send you your free track. Then they go to their inbox and a lot of people just stay with the default message, which is kind of scary to a lot of people who don't know what's going on. It uses the word subscription. Like we, you've requested a subscription or uh, please confirm your your subscription request or whatever it is and people think wait subscription that might cost money and they stay away from it and I and if you can completely edit that and say uh, you know please confirm your request for a free download and your um, follow-through rate goes way up because a percentage of people don't follow through they get cold feet for whatever reason after doing it or after signing up for that free track. So that's one big thing that I'm seeing a lot of people not doing is customizing that message. Make it personal um, and uh, you know, speak as yourself and so people know that they're signing up for something real and a real person is in charge and it's not just some auto, you know, automated robot that's, at least in their deepest fears, you know, um, somehow going into their wallet and extracting credit card information. Yeah, another thing too then you were touching all around it, but this is one of the big ones that I see when you're talking about conversions is just not having that call to action prominent enough. I mean, yeah, it helps to have arrows, but I think sometimes when people are starting off with a squeeze page, it's the first one they've ever done. Even if they've got their their headline correct or even if the offer is, hey, a free download, like you said, is more of a, a feature and not a benefit, but even if that is the headline – Sometimes people will visit that page, they'll understand the concept, okay, free download, but they'll also see the opt-in form where you put in your name and email address, but they won't put two and two together that they need to do one to get the other. So that's where that call to action needs to be prominent and needs to be very clear because, uh, you know, as we've heard a thousand times in direct response marketing is that a confused mind will say no. Sure. Um, so they need to be able to see that opt-in form, but know that that opt-in form is how they're going to get the free download. Yeah, good point. Good point for sure. Well, let's uh, let's continue forward, shall we? Want to queue up another one? Yes, sir. Here we go. Hello. My question is, how do you? It's actually a two a two part question. The first part is, how do you conduct a keyword search? And then the second part is, once the search is conducted, how do you connect with the people? that were found via the search. Thank you. Uh, Good question. Um, One of the things we talk about, again, for everyone who's new here, uh, is keyword research. We're going, uh, we are targeting, in many cases, the search activity of our potential fans because people are on the internet all day long searching for things they're interested in and one of those things is music. Again, I've been told, I'm not 100% sure this is right, but uh, as far as I understand, uh, music 
you know, uses more bandwidth on the internet than anything uh, next to porn. So uh, there is a lot of search activity out there on the internet. And we are trying to jump in front of that traffic and offer our music um, based on some kind of a, usually anyway, a related topic. Uh, for example, someone searching for folk music, you offer content about folk music and then basically be your own advertiser and insert a call to action to get more folk music for free from you uh, by going to your squeeze page. And that's kind of the process. So uh, that starts with keyword research and and there are a lot of keyword uh, research tools out there. I use a paid one, uh, and you can find that by going to musicmarketingmanifesto.com forward slash keyword tool. Um, however, uh, there's a free one out there. It's, it's offered by Google. It's a tool they created for their advertisers so they could estimate the amount of traffic they'd get if they bid on certain words. And to find that, just go to Google and type in free keyword tool, and it'll be the first thing that comes up. And you can just enter a term, and it'll pull up keywords. You can also enter a website URL maybe of a competitor or maybe of a blog in your genre uh, and see what kind of keywords they're targeting. It'll give you a lot of ideas and it'll give you the search estimates for the month. Um, there's a lot more you can do with some of these pay, paid keyword tools and I love them. But um, yeah, uh, the one I use actually is uh, Market Samurai. Um, but again, you can find out more about that in if you're actually interested, you can get a free trial if you go to musicmarketingmanifesto.com forward slash keyword tool. But um, yeah, the, the, the free Google keyword tool is a great place to get started. Um, you, you can get all the estimate estimates of search totals there. Um, in terms of how do you connect with the people, I think I might have answered this first. Essentially, once we know what keywords people are searching, for example, I did something for someone recently. He was a heavy metal artist in India and didn't think that anyone was interested in heavy metal in India. And I did a search and, uh, you know, found out, I can't remember the numbers, but it was, it was millions of people in India were searching for the keyword heavy metal or heavy metal related keywords at any rate. And then of course, um, globally there was a lot more and the beauty of doing what we're doing online is that we're not limited by geography. We can reach markets all over the world, particularly with downloads, um, but with physical product as well. And, and so by understanding that you now know, what keywords people are using to search for things related to you. And we're usually, by the way, not looking for just those big keywords like heavy metal. It'd be more what they call long tail keywords that would be things like um, uh, best heavy metal bands of 2012, something like that. You'd be surprised. There's probably a thousand people searching for uh, that very keyword or something very close uh, each month. And if you had an article that was ranking number one in Google for that and you inserted your own ad or your own call to action for your own music or if you if it was on your blog, you could even list yourself as the artist somewhere in that article. And again, we're not suggesting you uh, overhype anything or lie or be deceitful in any way whatsoever, but you tie your music uh, uh, and what you're doing somehow into that content Again, the, the sort of classic example is just, and for, you know, more heavy metal music, uh, like the, or for more heavy metal music from up and coming artists, click here, and that might take them to an offer for a free download. So that's kind of how we connect, but, but it, it really 
ultimately is about building that list. So just make sure that you, you know, if you're creating content for those keywords that you're driving people to a place where you can uh, exchange music for contact information and build your list. And I recommend you do that with email, not with uh, social media. Social media is a great reinforcer of a relationship that already exists, but at least in my experience, it's not um, nearly as powerful as email in terms of managing the entire relationship. It's not a replacement for a sales funnel. It is a, uh, an adjunct to your sales funnel. Yeah, it's cool. It's good stuff. I, I think the questions, you know, it's a pretty straightforward one. Um, you know, keyword research, you know, I to, to give an example, I, I guess the best example I could give is, and I was thinking about this, was, you know, just go to that Google keyword tool that you were talking about. And if you were to type in something simple like, sounds like Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of long tail. There's a couple of words there. It's related to Johnny Cash. Uh, it's related to music, obviously. But suppose you found that there were like 60, 70,000, even 100 and some thousand people that were searching for phrases that includes that sounds like Johnny Cash. Well, uh, you know, supposing that you were a musician that is, is sort of cut from that cloth you could realistically go in and just type a quick article that explains how Johnny Cash got his sound, why it sounds the way that it does, you know, mention the other players in the band, and then say, hey, well, listen, if you want to hear an example of how these things work in concert together, pop on over to my squeeze page. You know, not, you wouldn't say my squeeze page, but pop on over to whatever your website is and then make them that free download offer if that's your sound. But that's that's pretty much how you would, A, research the keywords and then put your content to kind of continue that conversation that the person searching for that is already having. Very cool. Very cool. Well, let's, um, let's keep going. Cool. All right. Here's the next one. Hi, John. It's Becky in Orlando. And uh, just a quick question here. Wanted to know if you have an opinion on the best timing for releasing an album. I've heard that some people think a certain time of the week, maybe a Monday is best. Um, I know traditionally it's Tuesdays in the stores and the major labels. But anyway, time of month or time of year, wondered if you have an opinion on that. Also, because we're approaching Christmas time, do you think that this is a good time or bad time to release an album? Um, does it get lost in the shuffle with so much going on for the holidays? Or is it a good time to promote an album because people might buy it for a Christmas present? Um, or any other holiday, if, if you're near a holiday, do you think that affects the, uh, the possibilities of getting press coverage or media attention on an album release? I'm thinking it's best to choose a time when there's not much going on in the news, if you can figure out when that is. Okay, thanks, bye. Cool, good question. Um We've obviously sort of dated ourselves there. We we uh, sent out a call for questions a few weeks ago, and it's taken us so long to get through them all that we're a few weeks behind. Um, but we are slowly catching up, so um, you know, please don't let that uh, prohibit you or stand in your way, rather, of, uh, of firing off a question. We will get to all of these. Um, in terms of uh, time of year, yeah, you know, the traditional... Um, thinking is that Christmas uh, is a bad time because you are up against some massive artists. It's actually the best time of year to release an album. It's just that there's a lot of competition. And there's a lot of competition because it's the best time of the year to release it. Um, that doesn't really matter if 
uh, you are not going after things like traditional press. Um, the it, the w- the only way that it does sort of kind of matter is the fact that uh, people are busy around the holidays and they may not have time for their inbox. And their inbox is where you're going to be doing most of your marketing. So um, I don't know. If, if I had a lot of momentum, I wouldn't be afraid to release something at Christmas at all. Um, particularly if I could tie it in in some way to to the holidays or create a promotion that was surrounding the holidays. With that said, I you know I guess all things being equal, I'd probably I'd probably wait uh, until a time where people uh, maybe had more attention for their inboxes. Um, I considered, for example, releasing my album this holiday season and and I missed it um and so you know the question for me is do I want to release it in summer or wait until the next season and I I probably will uh release it in late summer as opposed to waiting for Christmas just again because of that competition for people's inboxes um I I think I said (laughs) I think I said the same thing there five times but um in terms of time of week I believe Tuesday is a good day not because of any of the traditional reasons why people are necessarily releasing on Tuesday. But again, my launches are all taking place or the, 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 the real power behind them is taking place via email. And I've just found that Tuesdays through Thursdays are typically the time of the week where I get the most action in terms of people actually, you know, engaging with their inboxes. So I'm considering two things when I put something out or run a promotion. When am I going to end the promotion? Because I'm always going to introduce some scarcity element, whether it's a or, or time sensitive issue, where, whether or not it's you know a discount that's only going to last for you know x amount of days, or it's a, a bundle where you can get something for free if you order, or if it's a limited run of something. I'm always going to include scarcity because it's just a very powerful trigger. So I'm kind of thinking about that end day. For example, if if I'm going to end the promotion, let's say it's going to be a three-day promotion, then I'm going to start it on Tuesday and end it on Thursday. Uh, if it's going to be a five-day promotion, I might uh, start it on Thursday and end it on Tuesday. Is that are the, is that five days? I didn't do the math there, but you know where I'm going with that, and and so forth. So mm-hmm. if it's a week-long promotion, I'll start it on Wednesday and, and end it on Wednesday. But um, like I just did a three-day promotion for something I'm working on, and I started it on Tuesday and ended it on Thursday. So that's that's really all I'm taking into consideration is when are people. Um, when do they have time for their their uh, email? Um, because weekends, obviously, people are out; they're busy. Um, and uh, Mondays, people are recovering from the weekend and just catching up on uh, work overload. And so they have a tendency to just delete, delete, delete anything that's not super important. Fridays, you know, people are rushing to get out and not paying attention either. So. I'm taking a lot of uh, time to say something very simple, which is that I would basically drop it on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. Um, the only caveat to that is, is taking into consideration when you're going to end the promotion. You do want a couple uh, a good solid weekdays to build up the end of the promotion because often you'll see more sales on that last day of the promotion than you will the initial launch. That scarcity is very, very powerful. So. Um, if I if I was to pull something out of my uh, you know hat there and just just had to make up a launch schedule on the spot, I'd probably say something like you know Wednesday to Wednesday. That way I could push it pretty heavy uh, Wednesday uh, and Thursday, 
give people a little space over the weekend and then come back pushing hard Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the next week. And yes, I said Monday. I realized that earlier I said Monday is not a, a good day. It's not the best day, but it's still a fine day to you know send out an email. You just don't want your crucial part of the promotion to take place on that day. Um, anything to offer there, Steve? I do. In fact, something came to mind immediately when she asked the question. Uh, the first of which is it really depends on uh, what the approach is. I mean, uh, if, if you're building your own email list, anytime's a good time to re- release an album. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, because you're, you're dealing with, what, like you said, your own tribe. Uh, when you're dealing with the press release portion of it, you're talking about the world at large, which is not necessarily your subscribers, but they can be. So you use that press release to uh, to push people into the funnel so that you can build that relationship and then have some momentum going into your launch. But the one thing that really popped in my mind when she said that, and it's nice because it falls right into the days that you're saying with that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday schedule, is um, from my understanding, and you know, I'm not somebody who actively participates in something like this, but from my understanding, people that have direct deposit, I think that generally occurs on a Wednesday so that the funds are in their bank account on a Thursday. So, um, you know, one of the excuses you're going to hear a lot of time when you're running like a limited time offer is that people will miss that deadline uh, because they just didn't have the funds. So if you can kind of keep in mind that that's how a lot of people get paid. It generally they get it put into your account Wednesday night or something. They have the money Thursday. Um, so that's something to think about anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, you know, I probably brushed over it too quickly. If you are going to try and tie in some of the traditional elements like press, then then I think the the traditional rules apply. You want to give yourself a few months uh, of run-up time, and you do want to avoid the holidays uh, if you're going to try and do a lot of that stuff. And it also depends if shows are part of your launch. You know, uh, touring in winter has its challenges um, and benefits, I suppose. But um, you know, people are busy, and and so there are some reasons to avoid it. But if if you're doing what, for the most part, me and Steve are doing, which is is all relying on email marketing, then yeah, it's really not that crucial. I've heard of people breaking all the rules and putting things out on Christmas and still having success. So um, it really is going to come down to the strength of your relationship with your list. Awesome. Ready to rock the next one? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, here we go. Hey, John, Mike Osborne. Um, I have a question. Um, The Music Marketing Manifesto is... um, primarily geared towards um, getting people to buy CDs, merchandise, etc. Um, is there a way to apply a lot of these principles um, to more to drive bodies to a live performance, sort of, sort of um, pump that other aspect of the business where you're making money from your live performances, either from remote places, that you're on tour, you know, maybe cities you've never even been to yet, um, all the way to uh, your your region where you live, and and make the rounds in, and just wanting to make sure you can fill the seats. I've noticed it's become increasingly more difficult, and it may have a lot to do with the economy, but it's become increasingly more difficult to um, get people into shows. So I'm constantly looking for. Um, ways to drive that at home as well as when I go out and travel on the road. Thanks. Awesome. I'm glad you asked that. Um, Absolutely. Uh, This stuff really works with any call to action. 
um, and a live show is is a great one. Um, I think the same things apply. You want to find some reason why they need to uh, take your message seriously, meaning you're giving them a discount or there are a limited number of of free spots on your list. So people need to act fast. Whatever it is you're doing, uh, you know, you need to offer some kind of incentive. Otherwise, uh, your message just becomes more noise. Um, but as long as you're offering that incentive and saying, hey, uh, you know, if you're looking for something to do, I've got some great terms. I can put you all on the list. You just need to um, get back to me quickly. It's, you know, it's going to go fast. There's only 50 spots and there's a thousand of you on the list or whatever. Um, but, uh, but absolutely, you just, you're just presenting an offer like anything else and, and touting the benefits of what, you know, coming to your show is going to uh, bring each subscriber. The only thing that I would add to that is you just want to be sort of organizing your contacts uh, with some sort of geotargeting. Now, if you're using AWeber or one of the major autoresponders, you can actually add uh, an additional field. You need, a, you need a, a second service for this, but where you are adding people to, for example, a mobile list and, uh, you know, just be, I don't know what they're charging, 20 bucks a month or something. And uh, you can be at creating a mobile list based on location and you can send out text alerts as well to people with email links right right in them that'll you know take people via their smartphones to uh an offer to uh you know buy a ticket or can you know take a advantage of one of your guest list spots or whatever it is that you're offering people um so i love the idea of using mobile in conjunction with email marketing for live shows um but yeah, the only thing, again, just to reiterate that, is that you you need to be organizing your list by location. You can do that by adding a zip code field or a city field to your email opt-in, or just simply use your autoresponders IP tracking uh, and segment your list based on uh, their where they're located. Yeah, that's great. It's I'm really glad he asked the question because. Um, when you get into this stuff, it actually they they can all feed off one another. Um, so not only can you use direct response uh, and email marketing to sell records, but you can get people out to shows. But even further, and if you'll remember, John, I actually did a case study of this this past summer, where if you're using promotional materials inside of the venue, uh, you could set up a page on your website to where that promotional material would lead, and you would know that the only reason they got to that particular web page is because they had seen that one particular piece of material. So in the case study I had done in particular, it was to see if people would read my poster uh, before the actual show date and visit the website. It was a direct response call to action on the poster to get them to sign up uh, for my free tracks to you know continue building the list that way. And I was surprised that it actually worked really well. The thing that I would try next time using uh, the similar case study, which is probably what I'm going to do for an upcoming show, is to put a QR code on there instead of the uh, the call to action with the actual you know uh, URL. Instead of having the URL, just have the QR code. I mean, if people are using smartphones, they'll probably understand how to do that anyway and uh, have a nice little mobile squeeze page ready for them. When they do it, so you can, you know, get people to the shows using direct response and email marketing, and then you can also uh, pick up additional signups uh, from your promotional materials inside of that venue. Sure, sure, and I don't know if this will um, help or not, but I was a club promoter for years when I first moved to Los Angeles. I was, gosh, I think I was 22 or 
did I, was I 23? I don't remember. Um, and sort of lucked into slash sought after uh, a gig as a booker, as a club promoter, because uh, I didn't want to be another, just another uh, singer songwriter, solo artist doing open mics or whatever it was people thought you know, singer songwriters did I want to be taken seriously. And I thought LA was a town of first impressions and, and clout. And so I, um, really try to earn myself a lot of favors by putting on these shows and building my base, building my contact list and building my, my, my favors by putting a lot of people on guest lists. And I used to do really well with shows by letting, uh, and I still actually make a lot of money by letting everyone in for free, but it wasn't a free show. Um, uh, w- all the bars really care about is making a lot of money at the bar. If you can bring in bodies, those people are going to spend a lot more on drinks than they are at the door. And people are usually not, uh, or bar owners are usually not only happy to give you the door, they're, they're actually happy to pay you to just be there if you're going to bring in drinkers uh some bars will even give you a percentage of the bar so if you can pull bodies you can negotiate just about anything you know it might take uh you know doing a show at a loss or or for free or for low money right off the bat so that you can prove to the booker that you can pull people because bookers are also jaded I, everybody would tell me they'd pull 30 to 100 people and everybody would pull 10 you know it was just all everyone overstated what their actual draw so bookers are expecting this but if you go in and then pull a hundred bodies or even 50 bodies, that person's going to be impressed and they're going to take your call and they're going to take you seriously in the future. And you're going to be able to negotiate fees because that those 50 people, you know, that might mean $500 or more in alcohol sales. If everyone just spent, you know, 10 bucks and heck in LA, that's just one drink. So we're talking, yeah, probably 500 to a thousand dollars generated for the bar and they know that and if you know that then you can easily negotiate a pretty decent fee and still let people in for free that's kind of what i would always do where if someone walked up you know because they had heard the buzz they'd, they'd pay the 5 10 15 bucks or whatever the tickets were uh but or maybe, you know, if they were a friend of a friend, uh, they'd end up paying that money. But I would call everyone because, you know, this is before email marketing um, and all that. And I would literally just call. I had a thousand phone numbers at one point. And I would call everyone. It took me three days. Now, now you can do it with a click of a button um, with email and text messaging and all that. But it would take me three days and I'd call everyone and I'd pack venues. I'd have lines around the block um, after doing this. And I'd put every single person on the guest list. But I was creating, you know, everyone felt sort of special. And, you know, to whatever extent they were, they were my friends and I was letting them in for free. And if they just walked up that night, they'd pay 10 bucks. Um, and uh, that's what I would try to replicate with email marketing is essentially create your base in your cities and reach out to them and say, hey, I'm coming to your city uh, and I'm going to be playing. It's you know 20 bucks at the door, but I'd like to let you in for free because you're one of my subscribers. Only catches, there's only 50 spots, so you got to get back to me quick. And then you know maybe send out a reminder and you could complement that with text blasts and that sort of thing. And then create some sort of mechanism for collecting the information it could be um opting in it could just be a field that people enter their name uh and number of guests whatever you wanted to do uh it could be 
selling tickets uh, if you were doing say a discount list that's another way to go you could sell tickets right from your site or you could have people print some up you could do any number of things send out a password whatever it is but creating that value so the person on the other end of that email is like wow I just you know there's this perceived value this email he just sent me is worth you know 10 bucks and I was looking for something to do so sure I'm going to go to his show and uh, I especially when you force them to take action you're making them work for it and uh, they are then sort of, you know, not 100%, and people will flake on you, but they're kind of locked into the experience. They've already committed to it, and you're going to see a high uh, ratio of people showing up. So uh, this can be really, really powerful. And, you know, and if, if let's say you actively build your lists along your tour route, let's say you've got five cities that you frequent regularly, and you, over time, build up three, four, five thousand 5,000 people in each one of those cities, and you send out emails like this, you're going to get a huge turnout to these shows. And if you're consistently pulling 100 people to the room, you're going to be able to negotiate some really nice prices. Um, you know, if something like 500 bucks uh, is, is going to be easy, um, possibly even more. And... Uh, you know, some of these larger bands might command $5,000. Uh, you know, the bottom line is drinkers. If you're pulling them in and the bar is profiting, you're going to make money. So um, that's that's how I'd use that. I don't know. That was a bit long-winded of an answer, but um, yeah. yeah. No, I don't think so. If I could just add one quick little thing, too, is, is one of the things that you talk about a lot in your material is using scarcity. And that, that translates here as well. Um, you know, if you are building that list of four or five thousand people in each city, the scarcity factor comes in uh, when you're not playing them, you know, super frequently. And I think a lot of bands run into this trap. I know my band did a long time ago um, until I sort of figured this out. Was you know, we'd be playing this the same club, you know, every other weekend or something like that. There's no scarcity there, and you're going to see the the turnout dwindle. But if if the people on the list in a particular city know you're only coming back, you know. Uh, every now and again, uh, there's more incentive for them to come. Sure, sure. No, that's totally fair point. Though I would, I would argue that you can actually make it work on a regular basis. I mean, if I was to do this, I would be looking for residencies. Maybe not all year long, but for uh, a long period of time, I, I would be, you know, trying to do residencies in the same town because I want to be able to concentrate my advertising. You know, if you if you're moving on, mm. uh, and this is just my approach. Uh, um, what you're saying is certainly valid. But um, I would want to, you know, if I was leaving, then I'd have to be advertising in 20 different cities, whereas if I was coming back every week, uh, I could advertise in just five cities um, and build a significant list. I, I, guess it, I guess I'm saying if you've got new traffic coming into that funnel all the time and you've got enough people on that list based on the capacity of the venue, you can make that work. I mean, it, it's certainly we've all seen those bands that are selling out the local uh, bar every single Wednesday night um, for weeks, even, even I, I can think of a few examples of years. So I, I don't think that that's out of reach of a lot of people listening to this. No, it's a, it's a good insight. Well, uh, let's uh, continue on, shall we? Yep. Here we go with the next one. Hey, John, this is Tom Rule from down here in Macon, Georgia. That's uh, somewhere south of Atlanta. Here's some questions for your podcast. So how many tracks should I have available, i.e. ready to go, before seeking out libraries? Should I, should I start when I start with five, or should I wait until I have 20, or 1,000, or what? Secondly, I read this week um, on LinkedIn that somebody said you needed to have 1,000 tracks 
posted out in library and putting out another hundred a year before you saw um, significant income from licensing. What do you think about that? Third, should I submit the same track to multiple libraries or should I avoid that? I've read several different opinions here. There seems to be a vague consensus that it's not a good idea for vocals type pieces or lead type songs, but it's probably okay for background instruments. I'd like to get your take on that. What about libraries that read title? Again, I've seen a variety of opinions, some very strongly against, but others are saying it's probably an okay practice if the library is legit. Um, so what are some characteristics of a bad contract? What are some terms that uh, I should look out for and say, whoa, don't want to go there? Um, how long, this one should be interesting, how long does it take between getting a track accepted for a project until I see some money? You know, my mortgage company would really like to know. <laughs> and uh, finally, have you got any tips on deciding the cost-benefit ratio for a particular situation? Uh, for example, I just put out a new indie album and have gotten some PR marketing firms contacted me about uh, getting some promotion, airplay, etc. Now, granted, in the grand scheme of things, 250 bucks is not a whole lot, but the entire album cost me about that much to produce, not counting my time, of course. So under what circumstances would it make sense to pursue that kind of marketing for this kind of thing? Um, appreciate it. Enjoy your, uh, your emails, and uh, I'm looking forward to packing into the blog. Uh, the album info, if you want to check it out, is tomrule.info, T-O-M-R-U-L-E dot I-N-F-O slash depth, D-E-P-T-H. The album name is Accessible Depth, if you want to you know, reference that. Um, anyway, and again, I'm Tom Rule, T-O-M-R-U-L-E from Macon, Georgia, and I'm all over the web if you want to know more. Thanks, man. Good luck with the podcast. Bye-bye. Thanks, Tom. Um, those are all very, very good questions. Unfortunately, um, sound libraries or, or song libraries are just not my area of expertise. I actually asked Joe about this because I wanted to have a better answer for you, and it, he said the same thing. It really wasn't his area of expertise either. It, even as a music supervisor, they're pretty removed from the whole song library thing. So um, I don't really have great advice for you there. Uh, I if it were me, I would, I would simply reach out to a couple of the song libraries that you're interested in, uh, particularly the bigger ones, and just see what they say. Um, you might, an important question that I don't know the answer to might be to uh, speak with a traditional publisher and ask them if there are any things that uh, they see, you know, any sort of um, ugly deals that they see that you might need to watch out for, because at least from my perspective, the, the thing that you'd want to be concerned about is getting yourself into some kind of a licensing arrangement that might scare off a uh, publisher or even music supervisor. I can't actually imagine it um, conflicting with a music supervisor's role, but potentially a, um, a publisher might see some of the terms that you've uh, uh, agreed to as a uh, clash of interests or limiting your availability in some way. Um, and so I might ask a publisher if they had any concerns about song libraries so that you're not limiting yourself um, from that bigger opportunity down the line. I, I, the song, uh, this is not something that I've personally done at all. I have some friends who uh, see some regular income from them, and I'm 
don't doubt that there are people making good incomes from them, but most of the people that I know are making, you know, it's smaller money. Uh, it's a, it's a few hundred dollars a month kind of money. And my guess is that it's a volume thing, like you mentioned, and that may, something like that may be true. It, again, it's just not something that I, uh, focus on. I focus on direct response marketing, building my list and then generating sales as a result of that list. Um, so yeah, unfortunately I don't have, um, the answers you're probably looking for there, uh, regarding the last question, uh, you know, what should you consider when looking at investing in some kind of a marketing campaign? Uh, you know, it's all about the return. It's all about running the numbers. For example, if I'm thinking of, uh, paying a company to send out an email blast for me. And that's usually what I, the kind of promotion that I'm looking for is either just direct advertising uh, where I'm paying for clicks or where I'm paying somebody to send out an email. I'm going to run, just simply look at the numbers. Okay, well, if someone's going to send out a thousand emails and let's say, and I'll ask them what their open rate is. Let's say it's 20%. Anyone with a good uh, email management system can see their open rate. Uh, and you'd be surprised how low these things can get. Uh, there are people generating multi-million dollar businesses that get open rates of less than 10%. Um, typically, a musician is going to see higher than that because, you know, there's more affinity there uh, with the individual and the product. But let's say it's 15%, then that means only 150 people are going to open that email. Let's say 40% are going to click. I'm now dealing with uh, 60 people uh, actually seeing the offer and let's say it converts at uh 5% I've now got I can't even what's that is that 3 sales with um 5% on yeah I think that's 3 sales uh and how much money am I going to make if I make 3 sales if I just have a front uh front end product like a CD then I'm going to make profit 10 bucks a CD I'm going to make uh $30 so I can't pay more than $30 for that um, email blast. And that's how I assess things. Um, now, if I've got a back end and one of those people purchases my, uh, you know, I don't know, $40, uh, merch pack or whatever it is, I'm, or my membership site, then I can now afford $70 for those people. If I'm adding house concerts or live shows to that. And I've seen over time that a certain percentage of people come to the shows, I can add more money to that and I can expand the amount of money I can pay, um, per, uh, marketing, you know, effort. I don't know the service you're talking about. I'm not really clear on what it offers. I don't personally like many of the uh, services I see out there. I just usually, if there's a middleman, they're soaking up the available profit. Um, things I have seen profit on are pay-per-click advertising and uh, paying companies to send out email blasts on your behalf. Um, it's those direct types of advertising that I see the best return on, um, things like radio play and, uh, sending things out, you know, on mass to music su uh, services out there. I'm, I'm yet to find one that was profitable for me. So uh, I don't know there, you might have a very different experience, but, uh, and it, it does depend on what we're talking about, but, um, you know, uh, those shortcuts often don't, don't do so hot for me. Um, but that, yeah, that's, I just try to run the numbers and get realistic about what's going, you know, how much exposure I'm going to get, uh, before I assess whether or not something makes sense. Do you have anything to add there? Do you know anything about song, sound or uh, song libraries, Steve? 
No, I don't. I, I, I was going to ask that. Did you want to touch on his question about uh, generally how long it takes to see some, some money from, uh, you know, what was it, licensing, I think he said? How long does it take to see something come through after having a, a piece licensed? Uh, you know, I, maybe I misinterpreted it. I thought he was asking um, basically following that strategy, the library strategy, how long is it going to take before you're going to start seeing income? You know, same, same answer. Oh, right, right. I, I'm really, either way, really, I'm not, I'm not sure. You'd have to um, check with those, those libraries to find out, uh, you know, what their terms are. Yeah, yeah. And just, uh, just when he was asking the question, it was kind of the, the, light bulb went off in my head when he was saying that, you know, it's going to take at least, he had read that it's going to take at least a thousand pieces of music just to even make some kind of headway. And I'm just thinking to myself, how many musicians out there that are in the, uh, the first half of their career have anything close to a thousand pieces of music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd be much personally much more interested in writing a thousand articles, uh, and selling one product than creating a thousand products and hoping that, people came to them via these libraries you know that again is putting a lot of responsibility in another company's hands as opposed to keeping it with myself so yeah whatever that's worth yeah. all right let's, let's keep rolling all right let me get the next one here here we go hey my name is mason i play with uh apple latin that's AppleLatin.com. um i had a question for you we find ourselves at the point where we played a lot locally. We get played on the local um, public radio station. We've done one or two festivals outside the city, but really haven't had... Uh, well, we're really trying to figure out how to get out there and how to get um, shows in other cities. And, you know, people have talked about trading shows and um, really... Uh, trying to connect with other bands through festivals and things like that, but we, we've done a little bit of that. We've, we've made some effort on that level, but uh, we are having problems finding bands in other cities. How do you recommend going about finding the right venues, the, uh, locating the bands, that sort of thing? All right, thank you. Once again, AppleLatin.com. Cool, yeah, good question. Um, let's see, you know, in my experience, it's usually come through sort of my network um at least you know if i'm talking shows outside of those that came from booking agents um because i've worked with several in the past and and usually uh i've yeah I, ha I have done a lot of swapping like where i'll have friends on the east coast i'm on the west coast and uh you know i'll say hey why don't you book some shows on the east coast i'll book some on the west coast and uh we'll, we'll just add each other to the bill and that works really well you can turn that into a more deliberate process where you create you know i hate to say form letter but a form letter of sorts and just approach bands on mass you know it could be hundreds maybe even more uh bands where you simply check people out maybe on reverb nation or some other platform where you have some access to stats you can see who's active and who's not um and you can go to their websites and check out show dates and that sort of thing and say that uh you were listening to them you liked what they were doing and you you've got activity in your town and you know saw that they had some in theirs wondered if they might want to network a bit team up and share share resources and uh help book each other um you might in fact i I'd, I'd be shocked if you didn't get some uh, action that way. Uh, I would recommend that you sort of try to take it uh, off of email at some point and just get on the phone. I, I find that I can't make any real deals happen without 
taking it off of email instantly when you talk with someone you know both parties become real people and um, accountability that each person feels to one another goes up and you can really make things happen so uh, I, w I would try to do that um, but like you know you, this theme is sort of common no matter what the the strategy we're talking about the best thing you can do is to create value for yourself if you do have a big following in your town and you are pulling people then you have something to bargain with and you can go out and find other people who want that uh and you can exchange for for what they have so that that more than anything is the the most important principle and again like we talked about in an earlier question if you go and build a list in a particular town and you can call booking agents and say hi i have you know uh 10,000 subscribers 2,000 of which are within 20 miles of your city and we're looking to pull off a show we expect you know x amount of people to turn out uh then you're going to get people to take you seriously um uh, again, as a former booking agent, that's all I was listening for is how many people does this person think they can bring? And then I'm gauging them to see how realistic they are in their expectations. So, um, you know, that's that's what I do. I, I try to uh, systematize that what is normally an organic process that we're all pretty familiar with um, by sending out, uh, by, by consciously reaching out to people that are doing well in different markets and, and seeing if you can't collaborate uh, in some way. You've probably done actually a, a decent amount of this, Steve, no? Yeah, well, a fair amount. Um, I, one example that comes to mind is a tour that we had done through the Midwest a couple of years ago. And uh, the way that that actually came about was there was, we had friends that were from a certain town out there uh, that had relocated to Philly, and um, through just you know a mutual friendship, we came across somebody that was a big fan of the genre of music that we were involved in, and and you know in turn became a big fan of ours. And he was really eager to just help. Uh, and in that process, you know, we had the person in place that was you know <laughs> aware of the 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 lay of the land, you know, knew the clubs, uh, knew some of the people and knew a lot of the other bands. And through that process, we were able to put together uh, a string of a couple of cities, uh, with another band of guys that we had never even met before. And it turned out to get along with really well and, uh, had a heck of a little run there uh, together. It was a lot of fun, but it, it's, you know, obviously that's not going to be an ideal situation or it's not going to be as serendipitous for everyone as it was for us in that particular moment. But you definitely want to, Try to find uh, people in the cities that you're looking at that really do seem like they know the lay of the land. You know, which clubs are good, which their favorite club, uh, which clubs aren't even open anymore. Because I know there's publications out there that list all kinds of venues, half of which aren't even open anymore, you know. Right. Um, but it's like you said, you really want to get in there and just, you know, just send a message to somebody. Even if you're not even going as far as to offer us a show swap or ask for a show swap, just kind of get in there and say, hey, listen, you know, we're thinking about coming to your city. I hope you don't mind me me uh, uh, bugging you like this, but could you at least just give us some pointers on which clubs we should be looking at? Right, right. And I can't believe I didn't actually mention this. Um, house concerts is actually a great way to go. I know, you know, people have differing feelings on that. But if you've got a list, by simply sending out an email to your list saying, hey, we're going to do a, you know, some kind of a personalized tour where we play your living room and make it fun and interesting and, you know, sort of theme the whole presentation out a bit, uh, you can, you'd be surprised. Um, a friend of mine, Brian Vanderark, he makes like, uh, 
I think a good six figures a year or so on house concerts alone. And that's all he does is sends out an uh, email to his list saying, Hey, I'm going to hit the road for a few months and play living rooms across America. If you want me to play your uh, home, then, you know, get in touch with me. And he charges anywhere from, uh, you know, depending on his schedule. I think, I think you can check it. There's an interview on the, on the blog at music marketing manifesto about this. Um, but I think it's a few hundred bucks to about a thousand bucks. And he sort of, it, it sort of depends on his availability. For example, if he's booked something already in that city and somebody wants to tag on another gig, he can afford to come down. But if he's got to fly somewhere just for that gig, then he might charge on the higher end. And uh, he goes out for just uh, these days, I think he said just a few months a year and he's doing very, very well with it. Plus people buy CDs and, you know, he's got a bit of a name and a good list. Some listening don't necessarily have that, but, uh, but uh, as he points out in the interview, many many people are doing this with um, really no sort of history, uh, just a relatively small list, and they're not charging anything at all. But when you're in a somebody's living room and they've invited twenty of their friends to see this this sort of self-hosted concert, uh, you better believe those people are going to buy CDs. I mean, we had actually somebody come and play a party at at our home in Los Angeles uh, maybe a year ago this band that we had seen they were literally street musicians we thought they were awesome and paid them 150 bucks to come to our house and play this party we had and they sold I don't know 15 20 CDs something like that so they made more money on those CD sales uh, than they did on, on what we paid them and you know the CD sales alone would have been uh, a nice income for most people it was just a, a duo this particular act and you know that's House concerts are a great way to expand your um, reach by simply sending something out to your email list and your social media network. You'd be surprised how many people that, you know, they go, yeah, that sounds fun. That's a cool excuse to have a party. Yeah. On a side note too, just to touch on what you just said is that that very same tour that I was talking about earlier, man, we made a lot of money on t-shirts on that tour. In fact, I think we were even giving away the CDs in most cases, but people were buying the t-shirts, man. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Well, let's uh, let's keep rolling. We're actually starting to run out of time. We got a f- uh, time for a few more questions, so let's see if we can't knock a couple of these out. Definitely. All right, here we go. Hi, this is Mike Glenn Danning um, from www.mikegrungejazz.com. Um, <clears throat> I was wondering what the future trends will be when it comes to um, networking over line um, on the net, um, and how long do you think that this trend with Facebook would last, and where do you think, besides Twitter and Facebook, um, where do you think it will be going? Um, that's a huge question. I, I I put a lot of time and energy in MySpace, and it wound up just uh, didn't last. Um, and I'm just wondering if, what's your um, opinion on the future um, on that whole situation. Um, thank you so much. Bye. Good question. I mean, we we sort of talked about some trends earlier on uh, by coincidence. Um, so, you know, I, I just to sort of quickly reiterate those, I mean, I was talking about, uh, you know, I thought we'd see a continued shift from a purchase model to an access model. And, uh, you know, I thought we'd see a dramatic increase in the merging of platforms. And, and both Steve and I thought that uh, direct response marketing or um, marketing, conscious marketing strategies would become 
increasingly um, popular with musicians as opposed to sort of the haphazard exposure model, you know, that, that musicians have typically tried in the past um, without tying it into a real solid understanding of marketing and conversion rates. I, I think musicians are going to um, become more and more aware of how to tie everything together. In terms of social media platforms, I don't know, you know, I I'm kind of the opposite of an early adapter. I wait till something's proven and then kind of jump in. Usually um, I play with something right out of the gate, get familiar with it, and then let everyone else go and do the experimenting um, for the most part, at least with social media. Uh, I, I, I find that there are you know things like paid advertising are much more bankable than social media, so I, I don't love to put a lot of time into something until I know if it's going to stick. Um, like I was pretty late to embrace Facebook and, and late to embrace MySpace for that matter. MySpace really did crash uh, bad, and a lot of musicians in particular were, were hurt by that because they relied on it so much. But I think a lot of musicians had a false impression of how important it really was. I think they saw those you know, those, those play counts or that, that friend total and thought that they had a larger network than they really did. And then, uh, when the platform fell, they thought they had lost everything when perhaps they didn't really have that much to begin with. Um, I know I, that was me anyway. I, I put a lot of stock in MySpace once I did get into it and, and it really was not never very profitable for me, despite my tens of thousands of friends or whatever it was that I had. Um, I personally think Facebook is around for a while. Twitter, I'm not sure. I love I love Twitter, and in a lot of ways, I like it better than Facebook. But uh, just from talking to people, it it seems to have a hand. You know, a small percentage of people are diehards with it, and then a lot of people still don't seem to understand it or like it. Um, Facebook, on the other hand, seems to just be dominating, and uh, I don't see Facebook going anywhere anytime soon. Um, if they incorporate like a real-time search like Twitter does, I'm not so sure Twitter will stick around. But for now, it's simplicity and it's real-time search functionality, I think, I think makes it a valuable platform. Um, and, and for that, I like it. Um, Google Plus is interesting. Uh, it's the first thing I've seen pop up in a while that I thought had some potential. And it came out really strong. And, you know, it... it did in a day or whatever it was what what it took Facebook a year to do in terms of new users, which is to be expected given how many Gmail users are out there. But and I like it. I, it's very similar to Facebook. I actually find it to be sort of in some ways simpler to use. Facebook, as everyone knows, is always changing things up, and I'm still confused by the platform somehow. And I know a lot of people have experienced this. You find yourself accidentally sharing all kinds of information that you didn't realize you were sharing. And I don't, I don't see any of that with, with Google+. Plus. But it, it still remains unseen. It kind of came out strong. And then you know the buzz seems to be kind of waning. But I still think that that's got some potential. I, I like the platform. And it's right there in your inbox with Gmail. Uh, and so, you know... I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure is my answer if that's going to um, become as as significant as something like Facebook or uh, Twitter. My personal feeling is that Facebook's got it for a while, and it isn't necessarily going to go anywhere. The, the the thing I would add to all this, and the thing where at least I failed so badly with MySpace is that I was relying on someone else's property to manage and and uh, control my entire business. 
now, I, I'm, as you've probably already heard through the course of this podcast, uh, I'm really focused on getting people off of those platforms and onto my email list. So I would say whatever platform you're experimenting with or playing with, just be getting people off of that platform and onto your email list and do your marketing, create your sales funnel there via email uh, and even potentially uh, via mobile by getting people's um, s cell phone numbers, any contact information that you own and control while, while for at least the lifespan of you know the granted permission by the user. Um, and use those tools for what they're meant to be used for as as social tools. You know, use them to reinforce the relationship that you have with them. I'll use Facebook pretty legitimately. I'll post things that I'm doing and just kind of keep people engaged with with who I am and what I'm about and you know my, the personal side of my life and the occasional push for a product or, or a free track or you know an album release or whatever it is I'm doing will will come through those channels for sure. Um, but it's much more about those pictures and updates and just continuing to create an interesting channel and a lifestyle that people can buy into. But my marketing is taking place uh, uh, on that email platform. So that's, you know, that's kind of my long-winded answer there. Yeah, and I agree with you. In fact, you kind of really uh, pushed the point that I, I think I was trying to make earlier when we were talking about our predictions was that, you know, all these things, they are, they're just tools. They're not a strategy. The strategy, you know, is, is what you've revealed uh, with direct response and having control over the, uh, the environment with your website, but then pushing people into uh, a follow-up system, which you absolutely control. Um, but the rest of the stuff is a tool to feed that process. So, you know, social media, I mean, even I'll admit, you know, I still, I'm still calibrating to it. I was a late comer to MySpace. I was a late comer to Facebook. And, um, you know, one of the most uh, insightful things that I've ever heard about using social media is, uh, something It was a, a guy, I think his name was Perry Belcher. He had this thing that he called it the, uh, the party principle, which is basically, you know, let's just say that you sold uh, life insurance for for a living. You're not going to go into somebody's party and, you know, be the uh, the jerk at the party and say, hey, how you doing? Uh, would you like to buy some life insurance? You know, nobody likes that guy at the party. But what you might do is get to know them a little bit and you know, talk about talk about cool stuff, possibly talk about them and, and get to know them and then maybe invite them to your house for a barbecue and that's just sort of a metaphor of you know introduce yourself let people get a feel for who you are with social media and then occasionally invite them back to your blog or your website where you can share more about yourself uh, and let them decide to take an interest in you as, as opposed to you forcing it on them um, and then try, you know constantly trying to drag people back to you know even a squeeze page sometimes it's it's uh, can be a bit of a turnoff but if every now and again you send out your squeeze page but in between you're sending out stuff that's legitimate content that you you're trying to uh, you know provide value to somebody else for that's where this party principle works that's sort of the equivalent of you inviting them to your house for a barbecue where you guys can talk about it whatever you want without having to come off like a like a salesperson you know totally totally good points um, let's, um, let's keep rolling, shall we? Awesome. Yeah. Getting down the wire here. Here we go. Hey, John, this is Kim Kondrashov calling from Surrey, British Columbia, Canada. My question is, will you still sometime in the future have somebody put a package or one of your people or your company put a package together for somebody like me who does not have the skills on the computer to do so? And would the price be $500? 
I've been trying Reverb Nation with their Facebook promotion. I've been doing Django Radio, and uh, that just doesn't seem to be working. I mean, getting a few hits, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's all about directing traffic, as you say. Lots of numbers, getting lots of numbers to go to a particular website, such as mine, to promote my own music. Anyways, man, there you go. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Cool. Thanks for uh, thanks for the question. Um, yes, uh, basically is my answer. Um, uh, I do take on personally like one-on-one campaigns once in a while. They're very very time consuming, and I've got a lot on the plate, and not not least of which is my own stuff. So I'm not doing a lot of those uh, in order to make that work or to take time away from my family and business. I need to charge a lot for it, and I kind of just hate taking money. Uh, on that scale anyway for musicians um, because I know what kind of budgets people are working with and it's just too expensive. I hate the idea of someone being thousands of dollars in the hole right out of the gate when you could use that money for advertising or something like that. So I don't like to do personal one-on-one campaigns. Um, the sort of next best thing is what I'm working on, uh, which is a 95% turnkey solution. Um, this is... Uh, going to come out probably in a couple of stages, um, but we're working on something that may be available as soon as, you know, one to two months from now, and that'll be something where you effectively sign up, fill out a, a pretty detailed worksheet, and then our designers go and build the entire funnel, and our copywriters help you put together um an email sequence and everything. So the entire system, the squeeze page, the blog, the emails, uh, everything is in place. And all you need to do is effectively drive visitors. And we, of course, create some traffic blueprints for you. So you could you could do that. With that um, said, it still, it, it always requires, or at least it should require some individuality you're going to have to create some blog posts you're going to have to create new content you know we can't provide you with a lifetime supply of content but rather a solid sales funnel that can make that first conversion and hopefully an upsell but it's really you know you're going to have to be the voice of your business so there will be some work required but um you know we'll give guidance on how to do that but in terms of that initial sales funnel we are working on a turnkey solution for people and uh in terms of the price uh for something like that because it, it is going to be manually put together by our designers and copywriters we want to keep that price as low as possible but it's still going to probably st- uh be around the $500 mark something like that we haven't you know figured that out we're going to have to time out the man hours and everything to to see what's affordable, but we, the goal will be to keep it as low as possible. Um, but of course, things like uh, Music Marketing Manifesto are infinitely cheaper, and they teach you how to do all of this stuff yourself for anyone who would like to save those expenses and learn to do it themselves. It's, it's, it's confusing when you're new to it, but it really isn't that hard, and it's one of those things that it'll, it might give you a headache on the first you know, few days, but once you sort of are past it and see the forest through the trees, uh, it does start to come into focus, and, and it becomes a lot easier. I was not a computer guy when I started with all this stuff. I've learned everything uh, from scratch, just sort of putting the pieces together randomly, and um, you know, so I, I know what you're talking about, but... Um, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to do this. Yeah, and another thing that he mentioned too was uh, was the numbers and how you talk about numbers. And I, I think it's important distinction to point out here is that it depends on what you do with the numbers. Um, 
and in the stuff that you advocate is drive people to a squeeze page where you can capture the contact information and follow up through email. And now you could, you know, drive the same numbers to a retail site to, the, to sell your music. But the important thing you need to realize is that it's hard to sell stuff. Uh, it's easy to give stuff away. Um, but if you're trying to sell things, you're, you're running the risk of people not buying the first time they're exposed to it. And if you don't, make the effort to build that list, then you've lost your chance to follow up. So, I mean, it's really a matter of, you know, if you're focusing on numbers, drive those numbers into a place where you're going to give yourself uh, an opportunity time and time again to, to make your, your sale offer as opposed to just sending them to a retail site off the bat. Cool. Good, uh, good advice there. Let's, um, let's move on. We got one more question and then we're going to sort of wrap things up. Um, let's cue that up if you would, Steve. All right. Here we go. Yes. Uh, what I want to find out, uh, I have a son that has a production company. He has a talent show coming up uh, within, from, this is December 9th on the 28th of January. Uh, seating is about 800 people. Uh, no tickets have been sold yet. Trying to find out, you know, what's the best way to get this out in the media, you know, to start selling tickets. Um, you know, they have a big uh, well-known uh, person that's going to host the show and everything. And what's the best way to get uh, it out to the media and get these tickets sold? That's cool. It's um, it's been a continued trend. We've been seeing that a lot, where uh, parents are actually calling in or writing in uh, because they're trying to help their their kids. That's kind of cool to see. Um, I probably didn't expect that. Um, uh, it's happened. I don't know, quite a bit in the last month or two. We've been hearing from parents um, trying to help the children, and it's just yeah, cool to see people so involved. Um, you got. Not a lot of time to work with. I believe you said January 28th, and it's currently mm-hmm. January 12th as we record this. Um, so that's going to be a challenge. Um, and if I understood right, you're trying to move 800 tickets. Is that what you got out of that, Steve? Yeah, 800 tickets uh, by the 28th. It's not a lot of time. Yeah, and not. I guess the first thing I would do, and, and we kind of brush past this stuff because it's you know it doesn't fall under that sort of cutting edge strategy category. But I'd start picking up the phone and call everyone I know. Um, that stuff works really, really well, and it goes back to the stories of being a club promoter. That's what I did. I call. I'd call everyone I know. I'd tell them what I'm trying to do, and I'd ask for their support, and uh, I'd you know create some kind of advantageous circumstances if I could, be it a discount or you know something like that, or a buy one get one free, or a free CD to everyone who bought a ticket, whatever it is that I was trying to do, and. Uh, I'd ask those people to help spread the word if they could and really just impress upon them what you did in that call that you're trying to help your son and um, he's got this cause and you're trying to help us make his dreams come true. People appreciate that and are you know, usually more than happy to help. Um, so I'd start there. 
um, if you want to use sort of traditional marketing techniques, uh, certainly paid advertising will get some people exposed to what it is you're offering pretty quickly. But again, I drive people to some kind of an incentive uh, to sign up for your list, maybe some free downloads of some music so that you can hit them multiple times for, uh, you know, uh, uh, opportunities to purchase these tickets or, you know, calls to action that revolve around the show you're trying to put together. Um, I wouldn't want to just drive people to a page where they could order tickets with no real relationship having been formed. I don't see that as doing very well. Um, Another thing you might explore is sort of what we call joint venture uh, deals where, you know, you reach out to, they could literally be people you know, businesses uh, that you have some sort of existing relationship with, uh, they could be perfect strangers, but anybody who has a list and offer them something in exchange, it could be money, it could be something for free, it could be an exchange of some sort, sponsorship, you know, where you're putting up company logos at the venue, or whatever it might be. Um, in exchange, they'd send out an email to tell people about what you're doing, and, and you can move a lot of um, eyeballs very, very quickly that way. Uh, I've built lists of our email lists. I've, I've, my biggest one yet, I got 1,800 subscribers in just a couple of days from a joint venture, um, and that's huge. You know, that would have cost me a lot of money if I was to go out and pay for that, thousands of dollars in advertising. So that's something that uh, you can do very quickly but uh, other than that yeah i mean i think that's with this january 28th deadline in mind i think that's what you're up against you're going to have to get somebody else to email for you you're going to have to advertise to build your own list or you're going to have to do the good old-fashioned pavement pounding where you pick up the phone hand out flyers do all kinds of things that are going to motivate people to to move quickly one thing i'm thinking about on this too john um and I'm not sure the logistics of it, to be honest with you, but it sounds like the kind of thing where he'd actually be able to, uh, you know, at least meet his objective if he were to hitch his wagon to a charity of some sort. I don't know what the what he said uh, ticket sale price would be or if there's, you know, a profit motive there at all. But it, if there's not, if it's not the money they're interested in, it's more of getting butts in seats, then – you know, maybe that would help hitch your hitch your wagon to a charity where people understand that by the purchasing the ticket, they're going to be helping out a great cause. Maybe they'll be more inclined to help you meet that 800 ticket goal. Yeah, no, good, good, good point. Hitching yourself to a charity actually could, uh, could, could do very well for you. Um, they also might have a list where, uh, you know, the charity exactly. would be happy to promote your, um, show in exchange for, you know, a, a piece of the profits going to that donation. So, uh, or a piece of the profits rather going to the organization. So yeah, that is, that is definitely worth uh, seeing if you can't pull, pull off. Um, I think that about does it for us today. Um, you know, the clock has been ticking away for a while now. I want to try to keep these things somewhat concise. Um, if anyone is interested in learning more about the marketing strategies we're talking about they can check out music marketing manifesto 2.0 that's at musicmarketingmanifesto.com and perhaps for already the uh, experienced music marketer who wants to take things to the next level there is also the insider circle which is a mastermind community uh, for musicians who want to network with one another and uh, always be learning new and cutting edge strategies um 
anything that you know before we go i'm trying to we're trying desperately to remember to do this each week and and sort of sign off with a kind of tip of the week or uh you know pick of the week even just something new something you're interested in something that you've been uh working on so you know for me that's something this is something i'm going to be actually putting a blog post on soon it's a new uh, service i actually should be told i don't know how new it is i think it's fairly new i just discovered it this week and i've been playing with it and i really like it it's called the uh, buffer and you can check it out at musicmarketingmanifesto.com forward slash buffer uh, and it's it's simultaneously a way that you can manage all of your tweets and facebook posts where you can schedule them in advance um, but more than that uh, once you download the sort of browser add-on it allows you it creates a little tiny icon and basically your google reader feed uh as well as in your browser where you can share a a any content that you find on the internet with and and with a click of a button set, schedule that to go out at an ideal time to your facebook or twitter feed in other words you create your account and you go and you um they actually give you some default suggested times like for twitter there are four times a day for uh facebook there are two uh and again i'm making up those times but let's say it's 7 11 you know 3 and 6 o'clock at night um in whatever time zone you're in and then facebook might be 10 a.m and 5 p.m. or whatever they've got there and you can adjust those and change them and so if I find some interesting comment I just or content rather uh, that I think my fans might like let's say uh, like I, I didn't I was playing with this the other day and found a cool article on Alvin and the chipmunks and how they were you know this this writer was making an argument that they were really um, a sort of uh, a, a voice to be reckoned with in the world of Americana history. And it was really interesting. I never thought of Alvin and the Chipmunks in this way. And I started look, watching some of their old um, songs and videos and r heard how, wow, these guys really are like old school Hank Williams-esque kind of Americana, you know, roots country or whatever you want to call it. And it was really interesting. So I just clicked the button and boom, it, it was added to my buffer profile and scheduled to go out at the next pre-selected interval and so you could you know spend 30 minutes load up your buffer account for the week and you've got constant content uh content going out to your list because that's you know that's the challenge with all the social media is staying engaged and what a lot of people don't realize particularly with facebook if you've got a facebook page if people don't stay engaged with your page then your content your your posts become deprioritized within facebook's sort of wall algorithm or however you'd say that and people don't see your posts as readily as they would the friends that they're consistently engaging with so it is important to be consistent with this stuff particularly on facebook and this is a great way to do that uh, and find that content that is a struggle for so many uh so many people you know we're, we're always asking ourselves well what the heck should i tweet about you know what the hell should i uh post about and Buffer makes it easy. You can even email yourself uh, to, they give you a special private Buffer email address and you can even email um, posts that will go out to your um, Buffer feed. And of course, there's all kinds of apps and stuff that make it really easy for you to do it. So um, Buffer is sort of my pick of the week is something that I'm really interested in. And again, uh, hang tight. I'll be, I'll be putting out a blog post very shortly, giving people uh, a sort of video demo of, of how it works. And, and it's free to, to use it, which is also cool. They have some paid upgrades if you really want to get heavy duty with it. But uh, you can have 10 posts uploaded at any given time 
uh, for uh, for free. So it's it, that's sort of yeah, I think it's cool, and that's my pick of the week. Yeah, cool. It sounds really awesome. Uh, one of the things that I'm looking into is uh, something that you put together. Uh, I can't think of the name. It was the viral viral music player. Is that yeah, what it's yeah, viral music player. Yeah, it seems really cool. Uh, can you can you explain this a little bit? I kind of only got the gist of it uh, through glancing through something you posted about it. But um, what is this now? You, you have a player, and they they click the player, and what happens? Yeah, it's it's totally in its beta stages. But uh, we hope to have it out, you know, within a few weeks, actually. Um, I'll be sending some stuff out when it's ready. But uh, I know some of the Insider Circle members uh, who volunteered, they're, they're testing the software and giving us feedback. We just want to make sure any final sort of bugs are out of it. But basically, you know, we as musicians, we're always sharing our music. That's what we do. Uh, and, uh, you know, but the, the problem with that is we send an email out to our list and say, hey, I've got a new track, take a listen, and they do that, and that's the end of it. You know, if we're really lucky, a very small percentage of them click the uh, share button there for Facebook or Twitter, uh, or Twitter rather, whatever you might have on your blog or whatever website platform you're using, and that might bring us in some traffic, but sooner or later, it's kind of a dead-end, you know, process. It's a dead-end cycle. Um what Viral Music Player does is it's really sort of easy to use. You simply create an account, you log in, you upload your track. It's hosted on our servers and everything. And uh, enter some information, and it creates a player for you. And then when uh, you sh- and then you share that with your list or you know your social media network or wherever you want to. You could get your street team to post it on their sites, however, wherever you want to display this. And then people come and try to play the track. And as soon as they click play, a little pop-up but uh, window opens up, and it says whatever you program it to say. But the idea is it might say something like, wait, you don't have access to uh, this track yet. Click the share button, and it will unlock the player, and you can listen for free. And so a person does that. They click the share or like or tweet button. There's several options. And once they've done that, uh, a tweet that you uh determine for them you write that tweet out or that facebook uh, wall post out in advance and it appears on their wall so in other words you might create a a post that said something like uh, i just listened to steve rogers uh you know the los angeles times said steve rogers is you know really rad uh you should download it or you should listen to a single and then and when when a person that will appear on each person's wall or a twitter or facebook wall or twitter wall and when uh, someone else clicks on that. They say, oh, hey, Joe thinks this guy named Steve is really cool. What's this all about? They click on that, and that will take that person to whatever page you program the application to take them to. So in other words, you could share this um, player on your blog, but you could redir- be redirecting people that click on any of the links on, on the social media walls to your squeeze page or something like that. Or you could send them right back to that that player. And effectively, you you at least potentially create this viral traffic loop where you share your music with people, they share it with people who then in turn share it with people and so forth and so forth and so forth. And I'm sure based on the strength of your tune and your, again, relationship with your audience, uh, you could you could potentially have this, you know, create a true viral 
storm of traffic you know it's a replenishing source of traffic with the click of a button and it's something that you know this wasn't something i went out to create because i I wanted to make some money this is something that i asked um scott james uh, from websites for rock stars i asked him you know if he could help me make this for me because i wanted it uh and uh then you know he said yeah actually I, I i can put that together and then of course we thought well hey let's share this with the public so um, we're beta testing it now, and it should be out in a few weeks. It's called Viral Music Player. Um, I actually don't know what's on the website right now on the homepage, but uh, you can check it out at viralmusicplayer.com. And uh, we're not going to release an unlimited number of these right out of the gate because um, you know it's a, a software. And applications are really challenging in terms of um, technical support, and then there's the load on our servers and all that kind of stuff. And we need to start small. Uh, it, you know, it will eventually be uh, re-released to a broader public, but initially we're going to put a limit on these licenses. So if you want to get on that early bird list, um, you know, you can head over to viralmusicplayer.com and, and sign up because those will be the people who get first dibs at this thing. But I, I think it's really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking in my head right now, you know, just the uh, the power it would have. Just imagine if you had a customer list, not just your subscriber list, but let's say that you've actually had a subscriber list and then a bunch of people did buy your your album previously, and now you're getting ready to launch another one. Instead of offering, you know, the, the normal route of the free track in exchange for email address, if you were to send this thing out to your customer list, the existing customer listen and say, hey, listen, I got a new album coming out. Here's the first track. Why don't you take a sneak peek? Uh, why wouldn't they share it? They already own your stuff. They already know what you're about, and they'd probably be more than happy to unlock the free track just by sharing it. Man, that's really, really awesome. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it is really that simple. It's a click of a button, and um, you know, there's not really a huge commitment there. So I, I see this as being a no no-brainer for you know, musicians. I mean, if nothing else, we need to share our music. And I don't know about you, but players are actually a pain in the butt. We've seen a lot of people talking about this in the Insider Circle Forum. You know, there's really not an ideal player out there. You know, if you've got WordPress, then there are some plugins, and then there are some um, players that require you to create databases on your servers, and then there are some others that have monthly fees, and, you know, some others that are like, I've seen players from forty to a hundred dollars, but there's really and this thing's going to be pretty cheap, by the way. It's 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 not going to be something that costs a lot of money. We haven't totally settled on a price, so I'm nervous to say say what that price will be, but it'll be less than the cost of two CDs. So you know we're talking inexpensive for something that does a whole lot, and uh, you know you get you get a year long license for for this tiny small fee we got to keep some level of it recurring just because um of that server load um you know we're uploading tracks you get a million plays on your on your track that's going to cost us some money so we got to protect against that but um but yeah it's going to be really inexpensive and and you get a year-long license for this really low fee and all you need to do is sell two more cds than you would otherwise to cover your costs yeah i'm excited i can't wait to uh to, to try it out 
Cool, man. Well, um, thanks, Steve, uh, for joining us. If anyone wants to learn more about Steve, by the way, you can check out his site at jamroommanifesto.com. That's jamroommanifesto.com. Uh, the coincidentally titled product, which is how Steve and I actually got to know each other. Uh, Steve knows his, his stuff, so uh, you know, by all means, check it out. And um, thanks to you guys for listening. This is our first, or sorry, our second official podcast episode. So um, kind of stoked to see that. You know, uh, the 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 the, uh, the effort continues. We haven't dropped the ball completely just yet. Um, and th- uh, but yeah, thank you guys for listening. And and once again, uh, thanks Steve for uh, being on the call. And and thanks by the way to uh, Joe for doing the interview with us. And again, if you want to hear more of that, you can check it out at uh, musicmarketingmanifesto.com forward slash insider circle. Uh, this month's insider interview is uh, the complete call, which is about twice as long as what we shared with you guys today. Hey, thanks again for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Cool. Take care. You too.